song but it still rings true today the tax man by the beatles you know why i'm playing that today is tax day april 15th has so many meanings to me and at least two meanings to you at least if you're in the u.s today's april 15th 2014 welcome to poker fraud alert radio the druff and friend show i am todd dan druff Wittellis, and this is not only tax day in america but it's also the anniversary, the three-year anniversary of Black Friday, the day everything changed for online poker. And we are still feeling many, many effects of it today. Some good, some bad. Of course, we're going to talk about that tonight. Before we get going, of course, I want to remind everybody that every week we have a free roll on Poker Fraud Alert. We have a poker room called the No Fraud Online Poker Room, and the reason it's called that is because you cannot get cheated simply because you cannot lose money there. It's a free poker room where all you can do is win or break even. Every week we have a free roll, usually at least 50 bucks, but some weeks more than 50 bucks. Like this week, we are giving away $110. 
$100 in the regular prize pool, and $10 in a bounty. Poker Fraud Alert has given away more money than any poker podcast in the world. Look it up. It's true. So that's tonight at 7.10. A little bit of change of pace. We're going to have a PLO tournament. So I know some of you are getting bored of No Limit Hold'em. I'm bored of No Limit Hold'em. So let's play some PLO tonight. I shouldn't say let's. I won't be there. But all of you who are listening live, go play PLO tonight for a $100 prize pool plus a possible $10 bounty. I I assume it'll be a $10 bounty because uh, the person it's on I see in the chat, and that's Flipper Fair. The reason there's a bounty on him, I believe, is because he keeps winning these tournaments. (laughs) So someone put a bounty on him. So just to quickly get the free roll stuff out of the way, and you have almost half an hour to register, so... For once, there's some time. For once, I'm almost starting on time at 6.30. The free roll takes place at 7.10 Pacific Time. And the prize pool is as follows. $50 for first, $25 for second, $12 for third, $8 for fourth, $5 for fifth. And if you knock out Flipper Fair, you get 10 bucks. This money was generously donated, not by me, but by our users and our listeners, SMI Florida, who donated 70 bucks. He's a new listener here and appreciate him very much. Trader SHKY, who has donated a lot over the years to Poker Fraud Alert, 20 bucks. Garrett, you may not like Garrett, but he donated $10. I like Garrett, but a lot of people here don't, but that's okay. He donated $10, and you have to give it up for someone who takes a lot of abuse on the forum and then still donates 10 bucks to the free roll. Not many people would do that, myself included. And uh, I Am Greek donated the $10 bounty this week on Flipper Fair, provided he plays, which I presume he will. So it's a PLO tournament, 7, 10 p.m. to qualify for the free money. You need to have a registered account on Poker Fraud Alert forum, the forum part of Poker Fraud Alert, dated June 1st, 2013, or before. If you have registered on the forum after June 1st, 2013, you need to email me, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com, and convince me you've been listening to the show for at least three weeks, and you can convince me of that by telling me content of the show that was not listed in the show description. Either tell me some things that I didn't list, or get more detailed on the things I was talking about and convince me you've been listening for three weeks at least and I will give you a lifetime exception to qualify for the free money provided that you remain in good standing on the forum. If you get banned, then you are not eligible to win the money. Why do I do this? Well, I want our users and our listeners to win the money. I don't want people playing these free rolls and having no interest in the show and no interest in the forum and no interest in anything we do here other than the free money. That's a waste of the money. I don't want to waste all this good money that's being donated every week on people just trying to leech the free roll. So that's why I have this requirement. And every so often I change the date. So later on this year, I'll probably move the date to like January 1st, 2014. So if you have registered and you haven't written me that email, you can also just wait and eventually you'll qualify also. So go register an account for sure. 
Anyway, that will get going at 710 in about 25 minutes. No Fraud Online Poker Room. You can find it near the top of the screen. You need a separate account there, but it's totally free. You don't even need play chips to play the free roll. No late registration, though, so be on time. Here is the agenda tonight. Actually, before I give you the agenda, I want to remind you of the phone numbers to reach me. You can reach me on our main phone number. That's 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. Also, you can call the Mount Charleston line. The Mount Charleston line is an old 70s telephone, a rotary phone that sits on top of Mount Charleston, which is near Las Vegas, and it forwards to wherever I am at the moment. That phone number is 702-430-1808. 702-430-1808. Make sure to unblock your caller ID. Make sure to show your caller ID or else you will not get through. If you do try to call and I don't answer, don't panic. It just means that I'm busy. Try 15 minutes later or so. Don't just hammer me the 100 phone calls in a row. I won't even answer for you. I'll probably block your number. If you don't want to call, no problem. There's two other ways to get a hold of me. You can text me. The text number is the same as our main phone number. That's 775-372-8355. 775-372-8355. You can text me before, during, or after the show, and I will read your texts on the air unless you specifically ask me not to. So if you do want to tell me something private and had not have it read on the air, that's absolutely fine and I won't read it. But everything else, if you don't ask me not to read it, I will read it on the air. And you can text me before and after the show. So let's say you're not listening live and you want to get involved in all the texting fun. You can still do it. Just text me whenever you're listening and I'll read it the next week. So if you want to reach me in the chat room, you can go to the chat room. Of course, it's uh, sitting near the top of the screen, the big chat button. You need an account on the Poker Fraud Alert forum. I try to read the chat room as much as I can, but when I don't have a co-host, then I can't read the chat as much as I would like. So I will try to read it sometimes, but I can't read it all the time. So if I miss what you say in the chat, try texting me. 775-372-8355. 775-372-8355. And I want to keep your phone numbers confidential. I'll say your area code, but I will never give out your phone number to anyone for any reason. So don't worry about that. Your information is safe with me. So I don't have a co-host this week. It's okay. I will speak myself. I waited to the last minute to do my taxes. I always do kind of out of principle and kind of just because I hate doing it. So I procrastinate with taxes. I mailed it out today at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And that's pretty much what I do every year. So I've been very busy today, both preparing for this show and doing my taxes. In fact, I was up last night outside doing my taxes, watching that blood moon, that red moon around uh, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock Pacific time. I thought the moon looked the best at about uh, 1.15 Pacific time, what I liked about it was that it was dark red throughout most of the moon, but the very edge of it on the left side was white. So you got a nice contrast there. 
it was a pretty unique thing to see. Though if you missed it, you have three more chances to see it before it disappears again for about 18 years. By the time it comes back, Benjamin will be like 22. so, And I'll be like 60. So you have three more chances to see it. Like every six months is going to happen three times now after this. So wow, I have a lot of texts. <laughs> I will read them before the show gets started. I won't even give the agenda yet. You're just going to have to wait through these texts until you hear the agenda. This is from, I think, Germany. Question for next week. Do you shave your huge Jewish balls and do you put aftershave on them? <laughs> so this guy wants to know, do I shave my huge Jewish balls? Hmm. <laughs> I, I don't know if they're laughing because uh, he said I have huge Jewish balls or uh, the question about shaving them. But no, I don't shave them. Uh, I've never shaved them. I have trimmed them a number of times, but I, I just don't shave them. Whether they're huge or not, I'll leave that to your imagination. Let's move on here to the next text. Hot like sauce, so- or sorry, hot for sauce thanked me for giving her dedication last week to her boyfriend from the 206 area, which I believe is in Washington. Hey, Druff, might be boring for some, but I'd be interested in hearing stories from your live cash game sessions, even discussion of notable hands and tough decisions. Thanks for the show, and good luck at the World Series of Poker. You know, I should do what I call the Positive EV show, or something like it, where I talk strategy. I don't like bogging down this show for strategy, because most people listen to the show for entertainment and poker news and perspectives on poker news, not for boring strategy sessions. But I know some people enjoy strategy, so maybe I'll have a separate show sometime soon where we talk about things like that. From the 609 area code, New Jersey, Hey, Druff, I'm a 60-year-old poker player, and I've been a frequent enjoyer and listener for about a year. I listen on Stitcher because I work Tuesday nights. I'm off on Wednesday and Thursday nights, and unfortunately I'm unable to play in the free rolls. I live in Jersey and have given up Carbon and, Carbon and Bovada for the new legal New Jersey sites, Borgata and 888 mostly, and I'm looking forward to when New Jersey joins forces with some other states to increase the player pool. If you're ever looking for an NJ player, as New Jersey player, for insight or commentary, let me know a day or two in advance, and I can go into my job, love your show, and this person gave his phone number and email, which I won't read, so... That's, uh, I might take you up on that, because I'll be honest, I don't have uh, very much connection to what's going on in Jersey. I, I do as far as California and Nevada, but not really New Jersey. I just kind of get that information third hand. So anyone who can give it to us first hand, I think uh, could be a good asset to the show. So thank you for the offer. From the 941, free Judonk, bitch. I keep saying I don't think he wants to be freed. For the 954, how much did you pay in taxes? I'm not going to answer that one. 617, the Boston area. 415, big for us Boston folk, too. I forgot about that. The Boston bombing. I agree with Bond18 that today kind of makes me want to punch a wall. Yeah, that's a depressing day. You got tax day, you have Black Friday, and 
you have that Boston tragedy. Wow. I, I guess I forget about things like that because I'm from the West Coast. But I'm sure in Boston it's on their minds there. And this is a question from LA, 323 area code. Is Puig really extorted by the Los Zetas? And that's about an article about Dodger Yasiel Puig that perhaps he is owned by the Mexican drug cartels. I'm not even kidding. It's a credible article that is suggesting that this might actually be the case because they helped him defect. Crazy. So those are our texts tonight. Let me go over our agenda. And... uh, (laughs) <laughs> I want to read one other text I got actually Try to go to your site PokerFraudAlert.com slash radio and, uh, and your site told me Fuck off Not nice <laughs> I don't know why I would have said that oh, I know why If you Actually if you go to PokerFraudAlert.com slash radio It will say fuck off Try it right now Just go PokerFraudAlert.com slash radio The reason I have the fuck off there There's an old school trick that still works, that if the person designing the website didn't put an index.html file or some other front-end file to load up when someone goes to the website, it'll list the entire contents of the directory on that site, and then you can snoop at people's files that weren't necessarily meant for the public. So whenever I make a directory that isn't really supposed to be visited directly, I just put in that little fuck off message if someone tries to look at it. <laughs> That's why I told him, though. Probably for pokerfraudalert.com slash radio, I should change that to where it doesn't say fuck off and forward it over to the proper page. I, I guess that's kind of a PR mistake on my part. I wasn't really thinking when I did that. Now, that's not a, it's not the URL you're supposed to go to to listen to the radio. He went to the wrong place, but I can understand the mistake. <laughs> so I apologize to that person for being told to fuck off when they're just trying to listen to radio. Totally forgot about that. All right, so let me get to the agenda tonight. It's actually a fairly long one. There was a resolution for the Borgata fake chip mess. That's when uh, Christian Lusardi snuck in tons of fake $5,000 chips to a Borgata tournament and was caught because he flushed the rest of them down the toilet in Harris. Not even where he was playing. He flushed it in the, in his own room's toilet in Harris. It clogged the toilet. And then when they unclogged the toilet, when they unclogged the pipes, they found the chips and then uh, figured out what was going on with the Borgata. So they suspended the tournament with 27 people remaining. And the question was, with all these fake chips that had been smuggled into there by this Lusardi character, what do they do? How do they pay people, and what about the what about the people who already busted? Did they perhaps get an unfair shake with the whole thing? Maybe they busted against Lusardi or someone else who won Lusardi's chips, which isn't fair because those chips weren't supposed to be there in the first place. So the New Jersey Gaming Enforcement Division has been mulling over what to do about this, what to require the Borgata to do about this regarding compensating players and as far as the final 27 that hadn't even busted yet. So they came up with a resolution, and it's one I think is completely unsatisfactory. That'll be our top story, and I will talk about that. Of course, three years ago today, Black Friday. Three years ago, Friday, April 15, 2011, 
people found very unpleasant news that the U.S. Department of Justice had clamped down upon poker stars, Full Tilt, and UB, the three biggest poker sites at the time, and took their domains and essentially shut them down. Then we saw the fallout. Then we found out that Full Tilt really had stolen our money, and the money we thought we had on there was gone. And also, not surprisingly, UB had stolen our money, at least the people who foolishly continued to play on there. I shouldn't say our money because I didn't have anything on there. And Poker Stars paid us, but even they kind of bungled the process on purpose and underpaid the FPPs. I won't go into that rant again, but since then, the U.S. online poker scene has not been the same. We no longer have Poker Stars in full tilt leading the charge with a huge active site. I mean, those are still active sites now, but not for U.S. players. If you're in the U.S., you'd have to play on things like the Merge Network, Bovada, America's Card Room, things like that. Networks where the software and the game selection and the support and the cash house and the deposit and pretty much everything is vastly inferior to what we had prior to Black Friday. But there are some good things that came out of Black Friday, and we're already seeing them. So I'm going to talk about where we are now, three years later, after Black Friday. We have another anniversary today. Not just the Boston Massacre. Not just Black Friday. I'm not talking about Tax Day. 25 years ago, today, April 15th, 2000, 2000 nothing, April 15th, 1989. I had my first kiss ever. The first time I ever kissed a girl was on April 15th, 1989. But what's the most interesting thing about this story, I guess there's two interesting things. Number one is it was a girl I kind of stole from a guy who really, really liked her, but he was stuck in the friend zone and she didn't like him. He was like an acquaintance of mine. He wasn't a friend. So I kind of stole her away right there in front of him. (laughs) And... But the bigger interesting connection to this whole matter is that 23 years later, the location where the kiss happened, the hotel room where the kiss happened, became infamous in the mass media 23 years later for something that occurred there at that very hotel room. It's probably one of the most well-known hotel rooms, individual hotel rooms in L.A. now. And it wasn't back then at all. It wasn't until about two years ago. So I'll tell you what happened in that exact same spot as where I had my first kiss 25 years ago today. Weird coincidence. I couldn't believe it when I found out. The Borgata is suing Phil Ivey. You like how this is the fourth story behind me having my first kiss 25 years ago? Borgata is suing Phil Ivey for his Baccarat wins. He won like 10 million bucks there. They're suing him. I bet you think that this is a topic we've talked about before and that I'm rerunning an old topic, but I'm not. The Crockford's situation is what we talked about before, where Phil Ivey was suing Crockford's, which is a casino in the UK, because they would not pay him for his wins in a game called Punto Banco, which is very similar to Baccarat. 
Well, now he is getting sued by the Borgata for previous wins at Baccarat around the same time. And the difference here is he already has the money. But it's the same situation otherwise. The exact same accomplice, the exact same situation he's being accused that uh, he cheated in the game. I don't consider it cheating. We'll talk about what really happened there. And I'll give you my opinion as to whether I think Phil Ivey is right or wrong. I think you already know from what I just said. And what I feel is going to be a dark day for advantage players, advantage casino players, if Borgata wins the lawsuit. Speaking of New Jersey... New Jersey is going to merge the online poker player pool at their legalized rooms with Nevada and Delaware by the end of the year? Wow. Wow, this story just broke today that New Jersey is making every attempt to merge their player pool. They have the biggest player pool, much bigger than Nevada and definitely much bigger than Delaware. Those are the three states offering online poker at the moment. But... uh, A room with all three of them is said to be imminent within the near future. Near future being kind of, you know, late this year. So we'll see. New Jersey and Nevada have really expressed a strong desire to do this. It's already happened with Delaware and New Jersey. Well, this is going to sound familiar to you. Net Teller. Remember good old Net Teller? Remember the good old days? Remember when you could use Net Teller to quickly take money off one online gambling site and move it to another or move it into your bank account or move it out of your bank account? It was just a very, very quick and easy and convenient and free way, for the most part, to move money online, offline, between online sites. It was great. That was until January 2007 when they got busted and they were kicked out of the U.S. market and extorted and forced to pay a very stiff fine to the Department of Justice. Well, guess what? They're back. Yes, NetTeller has come back to the U.S. market. Not quite the same way, but they are back in the U.S. market. You can now use NetTeller to deposit to a U.S.-facing online poker site. I'll tell you which one and... uh, What's going on with that? WSOP.com They just are not very good with PR. They're not very good with customer service. They're acting pretty damn shady, to be honest. A lot shadier than I expected from a legalized and regulated online room that is connected to such a huge brand. But there's a very bad situation going on there right now where... It appears, it's not for certain, but it appears that when they confiscate money from cheaters at the poker table, instead of the money going back to the players it was stolen from through the cheating, they just keep it. Yeah, that's horrible if true. Now, how come I don't know whether it's true or not? Well, it's because the poker room manager of WSOP.com is not only refusing to answer any direct questions about this, but he is deleting questions 
during his Q&A sessions on 2 Plus 2 when people try to ask him about it. Unbelievable. So we'll talk about what's going on there and how they're really blowing it big time at WSOP.com and just acting downright shady. And in my opinion, the current poker room manager needs to shape up or ship out because I don't think he's doing a good job. It's funny because WSOP.com, they have the bigger traffic, the bigger brand recognition, the better software, and you know the better marketing and all that. But uh, boy, are they bad when it comes to PR and customer service. And then you have something like Ultimate Poker, which is pretty good with PR and customer service. Not perfect, but pretty good. But very bad with everything else. They just have no clue what they're doing. So you kind of need a combination of these two and you'll have a pretty good room. (laughs) They both kind of have flaws in totally different areas. Two editorials tonight. First one is about the PPA. Should the PPA, the Poker Players Alliance, be openly engaging in arguments with Shelton Adelson's hired anti-online poker guns? There are some people who have been hired to trash online poker and defeat attempts to further legalize and regulate it. Of course, we have to really hope they fail in their efforts to stop it. But uh, Rich Muni, who's been on this show before, and I know listens to this show, has been arguing with some of these people directly on Twitter. And another listener to this show and poster on our forum, Steve Ruddock, wasn't happy about that and wrote an article that uh, this needs to stop, that he doesn't think this is a, a smart thing to be doing. So I will give my opinion. And don't try to guess what my opinion is. I haven't posted it anywhere And uh, it might or might not surprise you. Editorial number two. What can be done about the fact that there are so few women at the live poker table? I'm sure if you've gone out to play live poker, you haven't exactly gone out to meet chicks. If you sit down at a live poker table, it's usually all dudes or maybe like all dudes and one chick at the table. Maybe if you're playing high limits at commerce, it's all dudes and like, two or three Asian chicks, uh, most of whom are over 40 and not very attractive. (laughs) But uh, very few women overall in the World Series of Poker main event, usually it's 97% male. So why is that? There's an article on card players suggesting that sexism and aggressive behavior, not aggressive play, but aggressive behavior and nasty behavior and degrading behavior from men toward women at the table is responsible for this. I will give you my opinion as to what is responsible for this and what can be done to bring more women into the game. Finally, I just want to announce, this is not going to be a topic, I just want to announce that uh, the World Series of Poker pieces have sold very quickly, that is, pieces of me for the World Series this year. Some events are sold out already, some are close to sold out, Right now I have a cap on new purchases. You can buy no more than 2% of any event except for the 10K limit. That one you can buy up to 3%. But it's all going to completely sell out very quickly. If you still want a piece and have not bought one yet, please take a look at the World Series of Poker Forum on PokerFraudAlert.com and get your money to me quickly, or I guarantee it will be gone. I'm literally having to turn people away. And I appreciate that there's such faith 
in my poker play and such faith in me as a person that you want to invest your money in me. Of course, I've said before this is just for fun. This isn't uh, – I'm not promoting this as a wonderful investment or money-making opportunity. You might make money. People did last year, but you also might not. Tournaments have a lot of variance. I'm not playing anywhere near enough, not even close to enough, to smooth out that variance. So I could have a huge World Series and win all kinds of money. I could have a pretty good World Series like last year and win some money. Or it could be a bomb like the year before and win very little or no money. So you never know. It could be anything. A lot of it is based on luck. And we will see. But if you want a piece of me, you have to do it quickly. I'm not saying this to try to uh, pump myself up. Go, go take a look at how quickly it's been bought. A few more texts here. Druff, this is Seacow. Good luck in the World Series. I'm Jaeger drunk. Godspeed. Thank you, Seacow. For the 951 in Riverside County, California. Dude, what are you talking about? 617 Boston. I once got a net teller cash out in two hours via an ATM. E-Passport also had a quick ATM cash out method, but was shady as fuck. I agree. E-Passport really was pretty damn shady. The amazing thing is E-Passport had call centers in L.A. Like net teller was in Canada and most of those, I've never seen an e-wallet that was actually based in L.A., but e-passport, even though the people with power were kind of hiding out, the call center was in L.A. It was crazy. You called like a 310 number. But uh, e-passport, they backed out of the online poker market when they got a very angry letter from the U.S. Department of Justice, basically saying, you better back out of this right now and we'll leave you alone. Otherwise, uh, big trouble's coming. So they're like, okay, no more U.S. players. <laughs> They tuck tail and ran. Finally tonight, if there's time, there may not be for the first week in a while because there's a lot of topics on the agenda. Ask Dan Druff, which is the segment where people in chat and on the phone and via text ask me random questions, and I answer them. But it may not happen tonight if we don't have the time. Of course, you can try to call in, 775-372-8355. 775-372-8355-702-430-1808. Those are the phone numbers to call me. Tonight the Dodgers and Giants are playing. I'm not going to be able to watch it. Maybe you should do the show on Monday because the Dodgers have a lot of off days on Monday, it seems, but never Tuesday. The two baseball off days are Monday and Thursday. I mean... A lot of times teams play both on Monday and Thursday as well, but if they're going to be off, it's almost always on Monday or Thursday. Someone saying in chat, just because you call a 310 number doesn't mean you're calling L.A. I know that, but let me just say that uh, I could tell they really were in L.A. I won't bother to get into how, but it was a legit 310 number located in the 310 area. All right, so let's go to the first topic here. The... Borgata mess. Boy, is it a mess. It was and is a gigantic mess. That's the only way to put it. Basically, an individual named Christian Lusardi, as I said a little bit earlier in the show and on previous shows, this was in January, smuggled a ton of counterfeit 5K chips into a Borgata event 
at the two million guaranteed big stack no limit hold'em with a five hundred sixty dollar buy-in. There's no question whether or not he did it. He's guilty. He did it, and he was also stupid. He ordered the chips online from a company called Alibaba and actually posted a question there with his full name asking about chips and uh, and showed a Borgata chip that he wanted duplicated. And if that wasn't enough, the excess chips he didn't sneak into the tournament, he tried to flush down the toilet in the room he was actually staying in. I mean, here the guy's in Atlantic City. He could have dumped it in the ocean. He could have tossed it into a fast food dumpster or something. I mean, there's a lot of ways to get rid of it that don't trace to him. But he dumps them all in his own toilet and flushes it. And when they unclogged the pipes, they found the chips. They figured out where they came from. They figured out the whole story. So the question at that point became, what do you do about it? They halted the tournament with 27 people left. Some people had cashed already. Many had busted. You know, they were in the money already, down to the final three tables. And, of course, 27 were still in it. These 27 people all had a shot, some better than others, to win the whole thing. A uh, pretty large payout, too. So, the New Jersey Division of Gaming Enforcement has been considering for a while now, since January, what they are going to do about this. And they came up with a decision. A very lousy decision. Very disappointing decision. Basically, this is what happened. Uh, There were... Um, how many entrants in this tournament? I don't even know. But um, 2,143 entrants who may have had some kind of contact with either Lusardi himself during the tournament or chips he used, meaning people who played in the same room as he did and didn't make the money, people who busted out not making the money, will get a full reimbursement of uh, 560 bucks. So that includes the $500 portion that goes into the prize pool and the $60 entry fee. So they get their whole $560 back, which that part I agree with. If you busted out of that tournament, there's no way to tell if you busting out had something to do with chips that were not supposed to be there. Even if you didn't play Lusardi yourself, if chips were present that were smuggled in and you busted because of that, then you should get your money back. And since there's no way to individually analyze each person's play in each person's hands, in fact, it's absolutely impossible to do that, you have to just assume, well, this person might have been impacted by it, so therefore they should get a refund. I agree with that. Next. People who did not play in a room with Christian Lusardi, those people could not have come into contact with those chips. That is, if they were in a different room and um, if you played on a different day, I think certain other rooms there were... um, How was it here? Well, whatever. I I don't know the exact details. But basically, if you played in a room 
to where you had no chance to be in contact with him or the counterfeit chips, you don't get anything back. And I agree. Because it didn't affect you. As far as you knew, everything was fine. The chips that busted you, the players that busted you, they had legitimate chips. So you are not entitled to anything back in that case. That was also the ruling from the New Jersey Division of Gaming Enforcement. So great. Agree with that too. So far it sounds good, right? But, but, what about the people who cashed? Well, they're just going to get their money that uh, they cashed. Which I kind of understand. You know, that's not the worst. Um, I understand that they were in contact with counterfeit chips. But uh, they cashed. I, I can understand saying, hey, you cashed, you made money here. And uh, you just keep what you made. Okay. I can understand that. But here comes the bad part. The 27 players who are still active in the tournament are each going to get, regardless of their chip stack, a whopping $19,323. That is not good at all. That is not good at all considering the money they were playing for. And if you wonder how this adds up, well, it doesn't add up very well. Basically what's happening is the money that they are paying to the people who busted is coming from the top 27. So the money that was going to go to the top 27, they are taking that money and redistributing it to the ones that busted. And then the remaining money, they split. So that's that's what they're getting here is uh, 19,000 something each in a huge tournament with I think like 4,000 something people they were to the final 27 uh, seriously serious giving a number in chat the prize pool got ch- slashed from 1.4 million dollars to around 500k so about 900,000 dollars disappeared from the prize pool just disappeared Now, yes, that money is being used to pay the ones who busted out. But here's the problem. Here is the problem. The problem is that the top 27 were not at fault here. There is nothing they could have done to prevent this. They did everything the Borgata asked them to do. They played fairly as far as we know. They just came. They, you know, they played poker. They did their best to win, just like most people do at every tournament they play. Then they found out the bad news. They could not have done anything to prevent this. So how come when they had $1.4 million that was to be distributed among the final 27, that it gets slashed down to 500 k How come? How come they lose $911,000 out of this, according to Sirius to Sirius, in the top 27? How come they lose that, 
to pay the people who busted out. I believe the people who busted out should have been paid, but not from this money. You are punishing the innocent to make up for the aggrieved parties that busted out. There are two entities at fault here. Two entities at fault. Christian Lusardi for committing the crime and sneaking the chips, and the Borgata for being asleep at the switch and allowing this to happen. When you enter a tournament for $500 and pay them a $60 entry fee for the privilege, which is exactly what you're doing, the $60 goes to the Borgata. That $60 is supposed to be paying for, in part, their security, their ability to run the tournament fairly. The staff required with the proper expertise to prevent things like this from happening. They failed. The Borgata was negligent. The Borgata allowed this to happen. They didn't want it to happen. They weren't in a conspiracy to make it happen, but they allowed it to happen. It is their responsibility to stop it. So the responsibility here to pay the 911K should rest upon the Borgata and Christian Lusardi. Now, Christian Lusardi is probably broke, so he probably can't pay anything, in which case the Borgata has to cover it because they're definitely not broke. The people who should not be covering it should definitely should not be the top 27. You're actually taking from the top 27. You're stealing from them to pay the ones that the Borgata should be paying. Absolutely terrible. I'm sure there will be a lawsuit about this if there isn't one filed already. I'm surprised the Borgata doesn't just make it right. $911,000 sounds like a lot of money to you and I. And to an individual, unless you're filthy rich, it is. But to the Borgata, $911,000 is not very much. It's a huge casino, a huge operation. $911,000, they could pay it out and they'd get great PR. I mean, just the PR they would gain from this or should I say gain back from this after what they lost for incompetently running this tournament, would be huge. So they should say, hey, I don't care what the New Jersey Gaming Enforcement is telling us we have to do. We're going to go above and beyond because New Jersey Gaming is just saying you have to at minimum do this. They're not saying you can't do more. They can always do more. So I I bet there's going to be a lawsuit. Now, at first, my reaction was they should replay the final 27. They should tell them a date in the future. They should all come back and play. Uh, Beer and poker brought up on the forum. That's not very practical. A lot of people may live far away. Uh, You know, maybe they have small stacks. It's not worth the travel expenses. Some of them have commitments with jobs or whatever. So upon thinking about it, I think the most fair solution is to do chip equity. Basically, take a look at everyone's stacks and do a mathematical calculation, like they would do on Poker Stars when you agree to a chop. Do a mathematical calculation that, based upon your chip stack, you get uh, you know, such and such out of the 1.4 million they were supposed to get. So pay out the entire 1.4 million to the top 27. Basically, give them what they're supposed to get. But instead of playing the final 27, just uh, distribute it based upon chips. That's about as fair as you can make it. But to take 900k from these people and give it to other people, that's totally unfair. It is totally unfair. So boy, did gaming enforcement blow this. I, how can they say the Borgata doesn't have to reimburse out of their own pocket? 
How can they take from other players? It's not the other player's fault. Something I like to say to either companies or even to past girlfriends I've had when I was fighting with them. When I know I've done everything that I've been asked to do, when I know I have done nothing wrong, and I'm not saying I never do anything wrong. I'm saying that in a situation where I know I have not done anything wrong for sure, and I'm getting either yelled at or um, something's not happening as promised, I stop the argument and say, what did I do wrong here? Tell me specifically what I did wrong to cause this to happen. And if they cannot name what I did wrong, then I say, okay, if I did nothing wrong, then I should not suffer for it. I say this all the time when I'm on customer service phone calls, when uh, you know they have some kind of computer error that cost me $30, and, uh, or they, they promised me something, some kind of package I signed up for, and then it turned out I was promised something that uh, didn't really exist. And I say, okay, what did I do wrong? If the answer is nothing, you need to make it right. And it's that simple here. The top 27 here can say, Borgata, what did we do wrong? And Borgata would say, you did nothing wrong. You just came here and played poker. And the top 27 should say, okay, well, since we did nothing wrong, why are you taking over $900,000 from us? You did something wrong, Borgata. Kristen Lusardi did something wrong. But we did nothing wrong. So stop penalizing us. JSTAT saying in chat, MGM Resorts is trying to gain 50% control of the Borgata pending NJ Gaming approval. The fail will stop then. I hope so. See how much fail Caesars has, and they're a pretty large company. So that's one of two Borgata stories this week. I don't think there's much more to say other than this is totally unfair. I hope there is a lawsuit, and I hope the Borgata reconsiders and pays out more than they are required to. There's also a strange discrepancy where the Borgata is claiming that they are paying more than they're required to. They're claiming that uh, they were told they had to pay out at $1.7 million total. Or $1.2 million, they're paying $1.7. But then uh, the ruling from New Jersey Gaming shows $1.7. But who really cares? Definitely Borgata is not going above and beyond here at all and is in fact penalizing the top 27 who trusted them and counted on them to provide proper security here. So the Borgata fails. They fail to provide proper security. The trust in them was misplaced. And instead of covering it, the Borgata says, tough luck, you guys cover it. Pretty bad. All right. Moving along to our next topic, the Black Friday topic. So Black Friday happened on April 15th, 2011. Happened three years ago. And it was shocking. Everyone was lulled into a false sense of security that poker stars in full tilt were just untouchable. The government either didn't care about them or couldn't stop them. But we learned otherwise. We also learned that Full Tilt was not as trustworthy as we thought they were. We learned that UB had stolen the money like we thought they probably had. (laughs) Anyway, here we are three years later. 
A lot of people have gotten back their full tilt money. I still haven't yet, by the way. I should really call about that. I was supposed to get the second round of payments, but they never came. But anyway, a lot of people got their full tilt money back thanks to Poker Stars riding in and saving the day. We have some legalized online poker rooms at the state level. The other poker rooms available to U.S. players are terrible and very shady, some of them. This is three years later. So where are we? Where are we and where are we going? There was a speaker at my graduation in high school. I remember he asked questions of the graduating class. Where are you? Where are you going? And how are you going to get there? Deep stuff for an 18-year-old. Where are you? Where are you going? And how are you going to get there? And I think those questions definitely apply to the online poker legalization battle. We are in the middle of a battle right now. Forget the Merge Network. Forget Bovada. America's card room and all those little options, some more trustworthy than others. But forget those because they're going to be a moot point sooner or later. Right now we are in the middle of a battle for legalized online poker. Three years ago, the big casinos weren't sure if they wanted to be part of legalized online poker. Three years later, we're in much better shape with that, where pretty much all of them, except for Sheldon Adelson and maybe Steve Wynn, are pro-online poker. And we needed that. In fact, that's the most important piece of this whole equation. The Department of Justice has changed their mind about poker. They have reinterpreted the 1961 Wire Act in that it does not apply to poker that it only applies to sports betting. And while the 2006 UIGEA law that is preventing us from playing legalized online poker, uh, except at the state level, while that stays in place, the reinterpretation of the Wire Act was, of course, again, very important. So putting these together what happened was we got online poker at a state level. I've been saying for years and years and years that the path to federal legalization is through the states. I saw this a long time ago. I saw a long time ago that we were never going to have it where just a federal legalization bill is passed and uh, we have legalized online poker everywhere. It just was not going to happen. I said years ago, even before Black Friday, that it's going to have to happen through the states, where the states get legalized online poker, where you can play against people residing or actually presently in the same state. Residing doesn't even matter. You have to presently be in the same state to play against one another. And that once that is deemed a success, and when I say success, I don't necessarily mean by financially, but I mean... Nothing bad happens from it. All the fears turn out to be unfounded. Everyone says, oh, wow, no big deal. Online poker, it's working out okay, and uh, wow. 
all right, this actually isn't that bad. It's even making some money, making some tax revenue that we badly need. So I knew that would be the first step. The second step would be the states finding a way to cooperate and share player pools. The third step would be a lot more states joining in and getting in on the action. Eventually, many hooking up with one another, perhaps all hooking up with one another. And pretty soon, you will have most of the U.S. states offering online poker, sharing player pools, and it'll be almost like a federally run room. It'll be like a federally run room with um, a few states opting out. Like, I don't think we're ever going to see it in Utah I don't think we're going to see it in Wyoming. We may not even see it in Hawaii, which has been pretty anti-gambling over the years. But we will see it in most states. And that's where we're going. Talk a little bit later on the show that New Jersey, one of three states offering legalized online poker within its state borders, they have the biggest player pool because they have the biggest population by far. Nevada and Delaware, the other two but uh, that all three are going to be merged by the end of the year. That's great. That's exactly what we need. Not just to make the existing rooms better. Not just to make our games better that we want to play in, but this is the process. This is the evolution of legalized online poker. This is the next step. The cooperation of existing state rooms. I think when California jumps aboard, which will happen eventually, they have to sort it out. Some want poker stars in the market, some don't. There's some disagreement going on in California, but once they get that sorted out, I think once California jumps aboard, that's the game changer. Once they're aboard, once we have one-ninth of the U.S. population able to play legalized online poker in California alone, then I think a lot of other states are going to go, okay, well, if California is going to do it, we'll do it too. Whereas a state like Delaware or even Nevada isn't all that influential. And even New New Jersey, they don't have that much influence either. They're only a medium-sized state. You need a real big one like California to do it. Then I think the floodgates will open up. Then we're going to have a lot of different states joining in. And we're going to have very close to completely legalized online poker in the U.S. It's coming. It is coming. So, let's take a look. Let us take a look here at where we are now. So where are we? Let's go back to what that uh, guy at my high school graduation said. Where are we? Well, we're at the beginning of the process of seeing online poker being legalized at the state level. Where are we going? Well, we're going toward a lot more states legalizing it and connecting with one another. How are we going to get there? Now, that's the hardest part. Because there is now an enemy. There is now an enemy of online poker legalization, and that is Sheldon Adelson, who's been putting a lot of effort and money into it. And he has hired people who are making it their full-time job to fight it, to put out propaganda ads against it. So how are we going to get there? 
Well, we are not going to be doing very much. Really, most of the heavy lifting will be done by the corporations who want to see it happen. As powerful as Sheldon Adelson is with his billions of dollars, he is up against other powerful entities and the corporations, the very large corporations such as Caesars and MGM and all the others that want to see online poker legalized. So... That's how we're going to get there. So let's look at Black Friday. Was Black Friday a terrible thing? In some ways it was. If you had your money stuck on full tilt for years, and maybe it's still stuck there, that's a very bad thing for you, especially if that was the majority of your bankroll. That would be terrible. Not going to say that was a good thing. If you've been counting on poker, especially online poker, to make a living and you don't have a lot of savings to rest upon until it becomes legal again, it was also a bad thing for you. Because not everybody can afford to bide their time until online poker comes back. A lot of them move to the shady networks that exist today for U.S. players and are having a vastly inferior experience or outright getting cheated. And if you loved poker stars, I guess it was a bad thing for you because uh, at the moment they're shut out of the market and I don't know if they'll ever be part of it. But, but, there are some positives from Black Friday. Without Black Friday, we likely would not have had the reinterpretation of the 1961 Wire Act by the DOJ. Black Friday and all the fallout from Black Friday is what was the catalyst to the DOJ looking at that law again. If Black Friday hadn't happened, they very likely would not have reinterpreted that law. Which in turn would mean that we would not have our state online poker rooms. I think the path to legalized online poker would be far more immature at this point if Black Friday had not happened. If everything was going on along as it was on April 14, 2011, and we could still play on Poker Stars, and we could still play on Full Tilt, and we're blissfully unaware that they hardly had any money to cash us out. Even still play on UB. You may think you're better off, but you're not. Because the truth is, of all those big sites, the only one that actually had your money was Poker Stars. The rest of them were stealing from you. And full tilt, we had no reason to suspect that was even happening. There was no oversight. There was no regulation. Basically, whatever these companies said goes. They were the judge, jury, and executioner in every issue that came up. And as you've seen recently, even with a company like PokerStars, some bad things have been happening. We need regulation. We need a legal process that we can use as players when bad things occur. We need to know for sure that our money is always available and segregated. And we can't just take these sites' words for it. 
I hate it when people say, oh, PokerStars is a great company. I'm sure they have everything segregated. I'm sure, I'm sure they're looking out for our best interests. I'm sure that they're doing everything right. I'm sure we're not, we're not being cheated on there. I go, look, it's a good chance we're not being cheated on there. It's a good chance our money's segregated. I, I know they're even, you know, tried to prove it was segregated, but the point is they weren't regulated. They still could do what they wanted. You had no recourse if PokerStars did anything bad and you had no way to oversee them. They answer to no one. And their answer to you, if you questioned them, was, well, just trust us. Well, that's what Full Tilt said. Look what happened. We need regulated and legalized online poker. And Black Friday, as painful as it was, put us on that path. Don't forget that. We would be nowhere near where we are today if Black Friday hadn't happened. Let me put it this way. Have you ever been sick and had to take some kind of medicine and the doctor tells you that the medicine is actually going to make the symptoms flare up worse for a short time, but then it'll quickly get better? Do you refuse to take the medicine saying, oh, no, 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 I don't want to feel worse? No, of course, you take the medicine because you're looking for the long term. You're willing to suffer for a few more days even worse if after that you're going to feel a lot better. That's what Black Friday was. It made everything worse, but now things are starting to get better. And they will keep getting better. So it was necessary. If you go to dandruffpoker.com, that's dandruffpoker.com, you can see a little piece I wrote. It's actually not an essay or anything. It's actually a little... uh, Entertaining piece, a parody of It's a Wonderful Life, written on February 26, 2012, about a year after Black Friday. This is called It's Druff's Wonderful Life, and it's, you know, it's based on the famous movie It's a Wonderful Life, starring James Stewart. And the parody here is that I'm the main character, and I'm about to commit suicide off of Hoover Dam. Because of Black Friday. And then uh, the ghost shows up and shows me what the world would have been like if Black Friday never happened. And I learn throughout this piece, throughout this uh, little story, that things are actually getting better as a result of Black Friday. And if it hadn't happened, a lot of things would be worse, including Full Tilt would be stealing more money from us. Just because they'd still be up doesn't mean they wouldn't be stealing our money. We would just be blissfully unaware. So as bad as the damage was in 2011, it would be much worse today. And it would still be happening. So I bet in a number of years you're going to look back at April 15, 2011 and not be depressed would actually think, wow, that wasn't all that bad. In fact, maybe it was a good thing. Well, maybe you won't, but I think I will. Let's move on to the next topic. 
So go to dandruffpoker.com if you want to read this thing. You'll, you'll find it pretty easily there. Dandruffpoker.com is like one of the first things you can click on there. Dandruffpoker.com, in case you're wondering, was a, a little site I put up when I left the previous site I was involved with and had not put up Poker Fraud Alert yet. So that's where I would blog, and I wrote about 12 blogs there. And then about a week after I wrote this little piece here, I put up Poker Fraud Alert, and that's why the blog stopped at that point. Because now Poker Fraud Alert is my, bro- is my blog. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. Well, let's go to a lighter story here. Today is the three-year anniversary of Black Friday, but it's also a 25-year anniversary of a very special moment in my life. Yes, 25 years ago, I was at an award ceremony, kind of related to uh, my school, though there are other schools there too, kind of related to the local area, and I was not receiving any awards there, and at that time, I had just turned 17, and I was a virgin, and worse than a virgin... Turn this off. Worse than a virgin, I had zero experience of any kind with any girls, period. Nothing. And it wasn't from lack of interest. I had plenty of interest. It just, I, I couldn't make it happen, both for my own shyness and, um, I, I don't know, I, I just didn't make it happen. The most painful thing about it was I almost made it happen five years earlier, in 1984, when I was 12. There was a girl I liked who sat next to me in English class, and I found out through a mutual friend that she liked me too, and I kind of suspected it from the way she was acting toward me. Well, by the time I found out that she felt the same way, we were almost at the end of the school year in sixth grade. So I said, ah, screw it. You know, I, I don't feel like being pressured to try to ask her out here in the final few days of school. I'll just wait until September when we come back in seventh grade and I'll do it. So I put it off. I was also kind of scared to do it, but uh, kind of scared of rejection. But I put it off. The summer passed. I came back and she was not in any of my classes. And she'd been in like a whole lot of my classes in sixth grade, which I found odd. Then I looked around and I did not see her anywhere on campus. And it turned out... She had moved. Yeah. So that was that, and uh, that was the closest I got, really, to anyone for the next five years. So here we were on April 15th, 1989, and it was really grating on me that I was 17 and both a virgin and just had no experience with girls and really no prospects for any girls in the future. 
It, it gets to be, you know, like when you're playing poker and every time you go to the table, you lose. And after like eight losing sessions in a row, you just think you're going to lose every time you sit down. You forgot what it was like to win. Well, this was like that, except think if you sit down to play poker for the first time and lose the first eight sessions and never have won before. That's how I felt here. So anyway, I was at this award ceremony, and I was not getting any awards. I was just kind of there and kind of bored. And uh, I was sitting next to a guy I carpooled with. I don't know why I carpooled. My mom arranged it, but... uh, a guy I carpooled with, with him and a few other people. I knew him somewhat. He was a year younger than me. We had played some soccer together. He was a fairly nice guy. We were never friends, but we got along pretty well. Uh, he was kind of overweight. Not huge, but you know, he was kind of overweight, which you know, back in when you're a teenager, there's not that many people who are overweight. At least back in the 80s, that's the way it was. And um, he was with a girl there. Now, the girl didn't come with him. He actually came with me and several other guys in the same car. But he and his date arrived separately. So I thought they were a couple. Right? I guess they weren't sitting on either side of me. I guess it was some other guy on one side of me and her, and then he was on the other side of her. But anyway, I kind of got to like this girl sitting next to me, you know, the one that this guy was with. But I, I wasn't going to try to make any moves there because, you know, she was taken as far as I could tell. I thought, okay, this is his girlfriend. But she was really, really flirting with me hard, and I'd never experienced this before in my life. I had never had a girl flirt with me like that. I didn't exactly know how to handle it, especially because it appeared to be somebody else's girl. So I kind of just brushed it off. I just played it cool. and This probably actually helped me that I, I kind of feigned like I, I didn't notice so she was uh, really giving me compliment after compliment and uh, laughing at every joke I would make. Like I was, I was kind of heckling quietly the people up on stage. Like not heckling where they could hear it, but like just to the table. And she was laughing at every single one, whether it was funny or not. Um, I don't think the guy suspected anything. And so I came to learn as the night wore on, that they were not a couple. He wanted it to be that way, but she saw him as a friend. She was not attracted to him. She thought he was a nice guy, but she wasn't the slightest bit attracted to him. He was hoping that uh, it would go a different way, but it had never gone that way before and never would. So basically the guy was friend-zoned. Well, after some time there... We had been there for a few hours. I got really bored, and I just got up and walked around the hotel. This is the Beverly Hilton Hotel in Beverly Hills. And I wandered over towards the elevator, and I noticed that the light bulbs there, there were these light bulbs in the elevator, if you unscrew them partially to where they're still in the socket, but partially unscrewed, they go out. And the elevator was lit by like 10 of these. So what I would do is I unscrewed like nine of them to where, again, they're still there, but they're just not lighting up anything. And uh, then I go to the top floor, which is the eighth floor. 
then I would unscrew the last light bulb, making it totally dark as soon as we get to the eighth floor and walk out. Now, of course, I only do this if I'm alone in the elevator. Then I would take another elevator back down to the lobby, and then I would sit there and wait to see everyone's reaction from the dark elevator because they don't know why it's dark. And when you get in the elevator, you can't tell it's dark because all the light from the hallway is shining in when you get in the elevator. You don't notice that the door shuts. So think of this. You get in an elevator, the door shuts, and it's totally dark in there. So, um, and these weren't kids in there. These were adults. I was, uh, I was just watching and listening to all the stuffy old ladies coming down and, you know, talking about how they felt when the lights were out. And I, I, I thought this was hilarious as a 17 year old. So I kept doing this. I don't know. I did about 15 minutes and eventually I got bored of it. And I went back to the table and everyone was gone. So. I said, great. Me and my, my light bulb game is now the entire table's gone, and now I just, I'm just i sitting here alone with no one to talk to at all. So I got up again and walked around. I found this girl and, and the guy she was with wandering around too. And I said, oh, what are you guys doing? They said, oh, we're just walking around bored. And I said, yeah, me too. So I said, oh, you want to join us? I said, sure. So I, still, this guy had no clue that uh, I had any interest in her, that she had interest in me. So we're just kind of wandering around for a while, and then I think she said something like, wow, I wish there was something fun to do here. And I said, well, there kind of is. And I showed her the light bulb in the elevator trick. And she thought it was like the funniest thing ever. Now, I, I don't know if she really thought that or if she was doing this to impress me, but uh, she was so into it, just wanted to do it over and over and over again. Well, after about I don't know, four times of doing this, I could tell that this guy she was with finally got the picture. It finally dawned upon him that his girl was into me and not him. Yes, it's a very current affair for him. So, what this guy did at this point we get to the eighth floor again. We're about to darken the elevator and walk out, and he makes a speech. He says, I don't want to do this anymore. I think this is stupid. I think it's immature. I think it's really lame, and I'm getting out. I'm done with this. And he steps out and says, okay. Now, the okay was meant, he says, looking at the girl, saying okay, meaning, okay, let's go. Like, he was saying, okay, like, Come with me. So she says, okay. <laughs> and she hits the door closed. And the door shuts in his face. I couldn't believe it. I could not believe it. That she just hits the door closed and boots the guy out. The one she came with. The one she'd been friends with for so long. For me, a guy she knew for a few hours. And I said, whoa, I can't believe you did that. And she said, he was no fun. And then she slammed me up against the elevator door and started to tickle me. Well, I knew what I wanted to do. And if this happened today, or at least if I was single and this happened today, I would totally know what to do here. If this happened 20 years ago, 
I would know what to do. But 25 years ago, I did not. I'd never been in the situation before. I didn't know what the hell to do. So I kind of just stood there. And then when she was like tickling me too much, I kind of pushed her away. So then in a panic, I just hit any floor and hit four. And the elevator started moving because we were just stationary there while she was tickling me. So I hit four, it goes down to four, it opens up. I said, oh, here we are, four, let's get out. I can't believe I did that. I, I can't believe I was in a dark elevator. I should have hit, like, stop. What was that? Why was I going to four? I should have stopped the elevator. I should have started to move it, pulled the stop button, and then just let whatever happened happen. But instead I went to four. So we went to four and got out. We walked all the way to the end of the hallway and then we made a turn at the very end of the hallway and it appeared to be another hallway but there wasn't. There was just a room there. It was like a a suite or something. But we were out of everyone's view at this point because we just turned the corner and there's no one around that corner except for that one closed door to the suite. So we're out of everybody's view. She takes off her shoes. She pushes me against the wall and starts tickling me again. Did I do the right thing again? No. I did the wrong thing. I pushed her away. I literally pushed her away. It's amazing I ever got laid, you know, acting like this. But um, she finally couldn't take it anymore. She thought I was just rejecting her. So she said, oh, I give up. And that's when it hit me that I was an idiot. And I said to her, no, wait, don't give up. You don't have to give up. And then she came back and we had our first kiss. It's a very, very sweet story. Very, very sweet story. My friends try and tell me about a man of my own. But each time I try, I just break down and cry. Because I'd rather be home feeling blue. So I'm saving all my love for you. Yeah, well, the story's not as sweet as you think it is. Because uh, what happened? Did I end up losing my virginity to her? No. I saw her a few more times, but I found out very quickly, I think after I'd seen her just twice, in very kind of casual circumstances, I found out, well, let me tell you how I found it. I was on the phone with her, and she mentions a dude named Phil. Phil this, Phil that. So I, and Phil wasn't the guy, you know, who was with her at that uh, Beverly Hilton. So I said, "Well, who's Phil?" She said, "Oh, Phil is an English guy. He stayed at my house last year as a foreign exchange student." I said, "Oh, oh, okay." She said, "Yeah, and uh, we're in love." I said, "What?" What? Hold on. You're in love with Phil? She said, yes. I said, but I don't understand. Uh, what about <laughs> what about what just went on with us? She says, oh, well, uh, you know, I really liked you, and I thought you were really cute, and, uh, you know, Phil hasn't been around for six months, but he's going to come back in June, and 
we're going to be together forever. But until then, you know, Phil's not here. So boy, did my heart sink when I heard about Phil. I had these delusions in my mind that like, we were going to be together for a long time. I didn't think I was going to marry her, but I was like, I was thinking like, okay, here's my first girlfriend. We're going to be together a while. We're going to be doing all this normal boyfriend, girlfriend stuff and, you know, have a real relationship. Not that I'm warming the bench for Phil. So that was that. I wanted nothing more to do with her after that. So that was the end of that story. That was the abrupt end of that story. But there's a postscript. There's a postscript to this story. Very weird postscript. So, why am I playing Whitney Houston saving all my love for you? I mean, it's kind of an appropriate song. Here it's from around the same time period, but there's a reason for this. 23 years later, in February 2012, just two years ago, Whitney Houston was in a hotel room and overdosed on drugs and had... A premature death. Where did Whitney Houston overdose on drugs? In that very suite that we were standing right in front of on the fourth floor of the Beverly Hilton. That exact room is where Whitney Houston died. I think I cursed her. I think Phil cursed her. Something cursed her. Whitney Houston no longer with us. Her final moment occurred where my first romantic moment did. Pretty sick. Now, how did I find this out? Well, when I first heard about Whitney Houston's death... It was incorrectly reported as occurring at the Beverly Hills Hotel. And I thought, oh, when I first heard that, I almost thought I heard Beverly Hilton. That would have been kind of weird that she would have died at the same hotel where I had my first kiss. Well, then later it was corrected. It was at the Beverly Hilton. And I go, huh, it was. Wow. I go, I wonder what floor it was. And then I'm starting to look for reports of what floor this was at the Beverly Hilton. It says it was on the fourth floor. I go, I can't believe it's the fourth floor. I go, well, there's a one in eight chance it would be the floor that I was on when I had my first kiss. But I wonder where it was on the floor. And then a map was drawn by, I don't know, someone in the media of where this room was. (laughs) And I saw it and I go, I know exactly where that is. That's where I was. It's that exact room is where it happened. Apparently, people were trying to book that room shortly after her death. Like, morbid people wanted to stay in the room where Whitney Houston died at the Beverly Hilton. 
I bet two years later you could stay in that now. Yeah, I should take Benjamin's mom there to the Beverly Hilton and just take her to that room and just say we're having a little vacation to Beverly Hills, staying in a suite. Now she knows the story, damn it. Can't do it. So, that's my 25-year anniversary. April 15th, 1989. Let's take a look at the chat room. JSTAT says, A Forrest Gump moment for Druff with Whitney Houston. DJ Chap says, Wait till Chuck hears that Todd killed Whitney Houston. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be the next article. All right. Real talk saying possible to fail more, referring to my situation there. Now, I will tell you, I had another shot with a girl two weeks later after that, and I did a lot better. I, I won't tell that story, but I did a lot better. And that, that actually ended up being the girl I lost my virginity to, the next one, two weeks later. It didn't happen two weeks later, but, you know, I, I learned from my mistakes in the first time. But nobody died because of the, the second girl, so it's not as interesting. All right, let's move on to another Borgata story. The Borgata is suing Phil Ivey. This is a big story. It was even a front-page CNN article I saw a few days ago. So Borgata getting in the news for all the wrong reasons. Uh, here's basically what happened. Um Phil Ivey, if you remember, sued Crockford's, which is a casino in the UK, for refusing to pay him. He was playing a game called Punto Banco at Crockford's in 2012. And it's a game very similar to Baccarat. And he had a woman with him, an Asian woman, who spoke Mandarin Chinese. Phil Ivey given the limits he plays very, very high, he got Crockford's to do a few things for him. Because if you're a high roller, you can make demands at the casino and they will often accommodate you. Whereas if you're a regular player, like me and you, if you walk in and say, hey, I want to change this, I want to change that, they give you the middle finger. But when you're Phil Ivey and you're betting tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars per hand, they're willing to accommodate you. So Phil Ivey said that his companion, this Chinese woman, is very superstitious, which is well-known. A lot of Asian gamblers are very superstitious. That's why you have these Asians at Commerce always demanding setups whenever they're not doing well in the game. But uh, anyway, he was saying she's very superstitious and said that, uh, first of all, he wants a dealer that speaks Mandarin Chinese because she doesn't feel comfortable with people who can't understand her. She doesn't speak English. So they said, okay, they got a dealer who speaks Mandarin Chinese. Uh, he wanted the cards turned a certain way. She's, again, about superstition, he claimed. And uh, also they were using an automatic shuffler instead of a shoe, something. I, I forgot exactly all the details, but this was all a big ruse. Nobody was superstitious here. This Chinese woman was actually helping him engage in advantage play, 
Now, advantage play is not cheating. It's important to understand the distinction. Advantage play is finding legal ways to beat the casino to swing the odds in your favor. Because every single casino game, whether it's slots, whether it's video poker, whether it's blackjack or craps, they all have an edge for the house. Once in a while, you'll find an outlier in very specific circumstances, but typically they all have a built-in edge for the house, and in the rare cases they don't, the edge is so tiny for the player, and there's a ton of variance, and you have to play perfectly to uh, swing it in your favor. So, of course, that's the way the casinos make money. So the art of advantage play is finding ways to beat the games legally. For example, counting cards in blackjack. You're not cheating when you're counting cards. You're just using your brain to keep track of cards that have come out versus other cards and figuring out then the best strategy to bet based upon what has come out already. You're not using any devices to cheat. You're not using any employees to cheat. You're just doing something that swings the odds in your favor. And I think, I think that's completely fine. I understand why casinos bar advantage players. They are a business. They do have a right to stop advantage play. I can defend that right of theirs. They don't exist to necessarily give you money if they know what you're doing. But at the same time, if you find a way to beat them, if you find a way to play at an advantage and turn the tables on them, provided that you're not cheating... You should be able to keep the money, and you definitely should not face any kind of criminal charges. In fact, in New Jersey, they can't even bar card counters. They can change things around in the game, but they cannot say, you can't play blackjack anymore because you're a card counter. They can say that in Nevada and in other places, but they can't do it in New Jersey. So it's interesting this is what's happening there. But we're still on Crockford's right now. So in reality, Phil Ivey knew that the type of playing cards that were used at Crockford's had a very small flaw in them to where he can sometimes tell what the card would be from the back of the card. To be able to tell that, the card does need to be turned a different way. And uh, that's where the Asian woman, woman came in. She was brought in as a distraction. Because Phil Ivey said, hey, I want you to turn a card a different way. I want you to use an automatic shuffler. Um, you know, if he says things like that, they get very suspicious because they know this is Phil Ivey, great card player. But when it's Phil Ivey, degenerate gambler with what appears to be a girlfriend who's just very superstitious, then they let their guard down. And the reason for the Mandarin Chinese was so uh, they couldn't understand all of her requests to the dealer. So... There's no doubt that Phil Ivey was doing this. Phil Ivey basically admits he was doing this. He basically admits that the girl was not superstitious. The whole thing was because there was a flaw in the decks, that he knew about this flaw, and that he took advantage of it to swing the edge greatly in his favor. He won over $7 million at Crockford's before they realized what was going on and refused to pay him, and he is currently suing Crockford's for the money. Well, the Borgata upon learning about this, has decided that they're going to get in on the lawsuit action regarding the Phil Ivey advantage play in Baccarat because he did the same thing over there. Same girl, 
same demands, same defective playing cards. Except he already got the money. Phil Ivey won, I think it was $9.6 million there, and they want it back. Yeah, in uh, 2012, this happened. Uh, he won $2.4 million in April 2012. In May, he came back and won $1.6 million. In July, he came back, won $4.8 million. So... I guess he was. I guess it's twelve million dollars in Crockford's. It's seven point eight million pounds. So that's even bigger. But they didn't pay him. The Borgata didn't realize what was going on, and they did pay him. So they're basically suing him to get all of that money back, saying that he cheated, and saying that he engaged in deception, and it was premeditated. That the way he engaged in deception was by getting them to change the way the cards are turned. And by changing the shuffler. And that they did this based upon the belief that it was to appease a superstitious player when in reality it was to do advantage play. So they're suing him. They want the money back. Which is interesting. It's been two years, but they want the money back. So, I am on Phil Ivey's side here. I don't know if he's going to be victorious here because it's an interesting legal situation, and I'll tell you why. If Phil Ivey was card counting and won in blackjack, there would be no case here, especially in New Jersey. There just wouldn't be. If Phil Ivey was using devices to cheat or insiders at the casino to help him cheat, that would again be no case. There would be a case. It would be a no-brainer because then he would actually have been cheating and would be arrested and the money would be confiscated. But this is kind of a middle ground. In card counting, you're just observing on your own. But you're not asking the casino to do anything differently under false pretenses to give you an advantage. They're doing what they normally do, and you're just taking advantage of uh, the cards that come out and uh, what they mean. But this is a situation where he definitely lied to them, definitely deceived them, and it was definitely premeditated so he could have advantage play. So he tricked them into a situation where there was advantage play. So why am I on his side? Well, because that's part of the game. Part of the game, as the player is using whatever means you have without bringing any kind of outside devices or help from insiders in the casino to win. So if you can notice patterns in the cards, if your eyes can uh, be fast enough to see the card the dealer is actually showing you, whatever it is, if it's part of the game in play, then it should be legal, both civilly and criminally. Now, they're not trying to criminally charge him, but they're trying to civilly sue him. But I believe that since Ivy did not bring any cheating device or use anyone who's an employee of that casino 
to give him signals or anything. There was no inside help other than his own friend who had no more access to the situation than he did. Then he was simply engaging in advantage play. He was simply beating the casino at their own game. He simply noticed something they didn't, and that was that the cards had a flaw in them. And they stupidly moved the cards closer to him so he could see the flaw when he asked them to. He's not required to tell them the truth. Yes, it was premeditated. Yes, he was deceiving them. But he is not required to be honest about everything. He asked for something to be done, and they said yes. It's not like he had mirrors at the table to where he could see the cards. He asked, can you put the cards here and turn them this way? And they said yes. So fine. They did. Who cares about the reason? They agreed to do it. They knew what they were doing when they did it. They knew exactly where the cards were, would be. They didn't know that he was going to be able to see them better and notice a flaw or take advantage of a flaw he knew existed in them, but that doesn't matter. That's up to them to make sure that their gaming equipment is proper and that the cards don't have these flaws that can be taken advantage of. Just like it's your responsibility as a player to have your wits about you when you're playing and make sure to play the best strategy. If you show up and you're in a bad mood or you're drunk or you're high and you play terribly and lose, tough luck, you lose the money. It's the same thing. On their end, the responsibility, sh- the responsibility should be to provide gaming equipment that's proper. And if they don't, it's on them. If they don't and they lose money because of it, it's on them. Just like the other situation in the poker room, they did not catch the cheater. They didn't provide proper security. So it should be, again, on them. Now, that's not to say that the Borgata has no chance in court. I think they have a fairly good chance. Because it looks bad for Ivy in court that he engaged in this deception and that it was premeditated, that he lied to them, that he got them to do something to give him an edge under false pretenses. That makes him look like a liar, that makes him look like a cheater, and even neutral people writing about this, like there was an article on CNN that the heading was Poker Star... Uh, sued for cheating in casino or something like that. I'm like, what sued for cheating? He wasn't cheating. I don't believe he was cheating. Cheating is having help from the staff, using devices. That's cheating. This was not. This was just advantage play. Now, here's the problem. If the Borgata wins this case, and they might, I'm not saying they will, but they might, this could be a landmark case against advantage players everywhere. Because once this happens, then any time a casino can prove deception or premeditation, then they can successfully sue players to get their money back. Now, if you think about it, Even the old card-counting blackjack teams, like the MIT team, were engaging in deception and premeditation. They were doing a bit differently. They weren't asking the casino to uh, change the rules around or change the cards around, but they were using phony premises, 
they were uh, pretending not to know each other, this team, when they actually all did, and they were you know in cahoots with the same bankroll, giving signals to each other. This is definitely premeditation and deception on the part of the MIT card counting team. And if the Borgata is victorious against Phil Ivey here, then this could pave the way for a lot of similar lawsuits. Now, I don't think they're going to sue every card counter who wins 500 bucks at a casino, but I think that they may go after other advantage players who win a lot of money. So that's very bad. It really bothers me when advantage play is considered cheating by the law, and I hope this time it is not. I hope Ivy gets to keep the money, not because I love Ivy, but he's right here. And it was the Borgata's fault. Once again, it was the Borgata's fault for being asleep at the switch. Seems to be a theme with them. So I'm not a big Borgata fan this week. Real Talk saying in chat, it's his fault they are stupid enough to meet his demands? That's true. I mean, that's what I was saying. If you ask for something and the casino says okay and they fully understand what you're asking for and they do it, that's it. Who cares about the reason? If they're doing it, that's it. (laughs) Phil Ivey says, okay, put the cards this way. Okay. Okay, you just did it. That's it. Who cares about the pretense and the reason? They knew what they were doing. They did it. JSTAT saying whole carding advantage play will be shut down if Borgata wins. Exactly. Like, there will be so many forms of advantage play that can be shut down by this. So I really hope the Borgata does not win this case. And I hope this is a landmark the other way that advantage play is not something to where you can sue the winner. All right. Since we're talking about New Jersey, let's keep talking about New Jersey. It's been a New Jersey-heavy show. Talked about the fake chips in New Jersey. Talked about the online poker rooms that got legalized thanks to Black Friday in New Jersey. Talked about the Borgata situation with the Ivy in New Jersey. The only thing that hasn't been about Jersey yet was my first kiss in the room where Whitney Houston died. I'm surprised that didn't happen in New Jersey. The next New Jersey story, in case you're not New Jerseyed out already, is that New Jersey is going to merge their online poker player pool with Nevada and Delaware by the end of 2014, so they say. It has not been established yet, It's still in the planning stages, so to speak. But it's a very good sign. This is what I've been waiting for. Both to improve the traffic on the Nevada rooms, because I'm I'm never going to be in Jersey to play those rooms, and also just to establish that all the rooms are going to want to cooperate with each other and can. So this is from Poker Fuse, which, as I've said before, does a lot of good reporting on... uh, Topics we care about in poker. It says, Mario Galea 
online gaming consultant for the New Jersey Division of Gaming Enforcement, expects New Jersey to enter into an interstate agreement before the end of the year. Now, there's no word whether they're going to enter an agreement to where uh, if fake chips get snuck in online that uh, the other players will have to foot the bill. <laughs> but, uh, going on here, Galea, a former chairman and CEO of Lotteries and Gaming Authority of Malta, <laughs> that's an interesting uh, resume, was hired by the Department of Gaming Enforcement in May of 2013 to oversee the implementation of online gaming in New Jersey. So this is the... Did I say Mario? It's actually Mario. So Mario Galea, who's basically in charge of the implementation of online gaming in New Jersey, working for the government, he says, All the hard work has been done, Galea told Becky Legero of CalvinAir.com. The next step is for New Jersey to go out there and say, hey, we have the systems in place. You guys can use our systems to be able to share that information. That information meaning about, uh, you know, connecting to their poker room. They're basically, they've basically been working on their software to interface with the software in the player pools of the other states. Earlier this year, Nevada and Delaware entered into an agreement to allow Internet gambling operations to share player liquidity between the two states and any other states that join the agreement. New Jersey is definitely looking at that agreement, and I'm pretty sure they will be happy to come into that agreement, Galea says. Nevada Governor Brian Sandoval revealed that he has had conversations with New Jersey in regards to joining the multi-state agreement. We would love to have New Jersey as a partner, Sandoval expressed back in February. This kind of reminds me of that uh, girl story I told. You know, I, 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 I was... Wanting her as a partner, she wanted me as a partner. The only person in the way there for the moment was the the guy in the friend zone. That was until Phil showed up. So there's no Phil in this story, though, except um, maybe Phil is Sheldon Adelson here. But they seem to both want to partner with each other. So looks good to me. New Jersey has been interested in interstate compacting since the beginning, according to Galea. Knowing that its efforts would be more successful as part of a group of states than it would be alone, New Jersey has built its technology within a conceptual framework that would accommodate data sharing between states. That's interesting. They, they built it from the ground up expecting this would happen, and they're ready for it. The technology in the U.S. is evolving faster than it has in Europe, Galea stated. Regulated markets in Europe have not begun sharing data across borders. The regulators from Spain and Italy have held discussions about the possibility. Galea points out that the U.S. has not only advanced in terms of policy, but also has the technology in place to execute the terms of agreements between states. So there's an interview where he talks about it, but I won't bother to play it. I I just pretty much said everything he's going to say. So that's great. That is great. It'll make the game's a lot more active in New Jersey. Not so much New Jersey, but a lot more active in Nevada and Delaware. New Jersey is the biggest room by far. And it will just pave the way to pretty much everyone joining together. This is exactly what we need. Maybe California will jump on board and sue too and join this. But California is a different story. California is so big, they, they kind of want to be the center of everything. California says, yeah, we, we will do a network, but you're going to join our, our network as a skin. We're going to be the main part of the network. We're going to collect the biggest portion of the rake, whatever. So uh, that still would remain to be worked out. But still, this is a great sign. 
So will you be able to play against New Jersey players when you're in the World Series of Poker over the summer, staying in Las Vegas? Answer, highly unlikely. The World Series begins in about a month and a half. And this is not a month and a half away. It's not even two or three months away, in my opinion. But the end of 2014... I think there's a good chance it will happen, and this uh, Galea guy seems to think it will. He says it will probably happen before the end of the year. There might be some implementation time where you won't actually get to play until the beginning of 2015, but still, it's coming somewhat soon, and I look forward to that. All right, so no more New Jersey for the moment. For the moment, that is. Netteller. Let's talk a bit about Netteller. Netteller was the greatest e-wallet of all time. Netteller had its idiosyncrasies. They were very strict about their rules. They were very bitchy if you didn't follow their rules to the letter. But they had 24-7 customer service. The customer service was actually knowledgeable and helpful. And most importantly, everyone took them. Every online casino, every online poker room, every online sports book, you could freely transfer money between sites. So let's say you have $80,000 on Poker Stars at the moment. At the moment, I don't mean right now, I'm saying like uh, 2006. And you signed up to a new sports book. And you want to play some bets tonight on a game. Let's say $10,000 for the bets. You can withdraw from PokerStars very quickly to NetTeller. Sometimes instantly, sometimes within a few hours. But very, very quickly. Within hours. And again, sometimes instantly. The money would show up in your NetTeller account. And then you would load it onto the sportsbook. You would pay no fees for the whole thing. And there it would be in the sportsbook. Now you'd have it there. Let's say you won on the sportsbook, same thing. You withdraw, get it very fast on NetTeller, move it back into PokerStars, withdraw it to your bank account, whatever. Now, let's say you don't have money to move around. Let's say uh, your bankroll on PokerStars is uh, struggling. You need every bit you have on there, but you still want to deposit it to the sportsbook. No problem. You can do a thing called instant cash, where you can deposit and get instant money on your NetTeller account. And NetTeller will wait the three or four days for the e-check to clear. Basically, it's an e-check and you get instant credit. It wasn't that hard to establish very high instant credit limits. And even though there was a fee, an obnoxious fee of like 8.9%, the online sites all paid it. You didn't have to pay it in most cases. So I called that a a virtual bankroll. I didn't have to keep much money online because I had very high instant limits. So I would withdraw a lot of money from PokerStars. I'd leave myself with a fairly small bankroll there compared to what I was playing. And then if I busted, I would just make instant deposits onto PokerStars. PokerStars would cover the fees. And, um, you know, I just make sure the money's in my bank account to cover it a few days later. And there we are. It was great. I didn't have to have much money online. I could withdraw very quickly. I could transfer around to other sites very quickly. It was a beautiful thing. Also, 
I didn't really take advantage of this, but you could get a Neteller ATM card. And even though you'd pay like a $2 fee or $3 fee every time you used it, you could withdraw money from ATMs with this Neteller card. Some people used it to evade taxes. As I said, I did not use this card. I never even got it. But uh, I know of some people that used this uh, Neteller card because they thought they were evading taxes doing it. I said, you know what? I don't think you're doing something very smart because when you use the Neteller card to evade taxes, you're assuming that the IRS won't ever get access to this data. They might one day. And boy, was I right. Though they, they didn't do anything with it. So I guess I was also wrong. But anyway, Neteller's end came very shortly after the UIGEA was passed in late 2006. And I believe January 2007, the government snatched the two owners of Neteller. They were two Canadian guys. They stupidly came to the U.S. and the government said, thank you. We will take you and we're going to put you in jail and uh, we're going to threaten you with all kinds of stiff prison time of 20 years. And we'll give you one out. Hey, net teller guys, if you don't want to go to prison, if you want to walk out of here, we figured out you've made about $200 million during your time here as uh, an e-wallet for U.S. customers. So give us that $200 million and uh, we'll let you walk free. And that's exactly what happened. The Founders of NetTeller coughed up around $200 million. It wasn't exactly 200 but it was around $200 million bucks. They coughed it up, and they were allowed to walk free and had to agree that they would not serve U.S. customers anymore. Furthermore, the money in NetTeller was frozen for quite some time, like 18 months, and I had like 7K frozen on there, but uh, we all got it back eventually. The money wasn't gone. It was just frozen. Now, at the time, people were very angry at George W. Bush for this because the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York was responsible for going after Ned Teller and extorting $200 million out of them. And the head of that office was a George Bush, a George Bush appointee. So if George Bush had appointed this guy and he was engaging in all this behavior that was so anti-online gambling... Well, all we needed to have was a Democrat to win in 2008. And then we wouldn't have an aggressive DOJ anymore. We wouldn't have an office out of the Southern District of New York that's going after companies like NetTeller and online poker sites. And, you know, as you guys know, after 2008, uh, we definitely did not have any kind of bus related to online poker. (laughs) Yeah, so they did get a new guy in charge of that office, an Obama appointee. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Different people, same story. That office has always been about going after lucrative criminal enterprises, busting them and taking their assets and putting into the government coffers. That's always what that office has been about. Whether appointed by a Democrat or appointed by a Republican, it doesn't matter who's in charge. They've had the same goal. It's almost like the same people. So... I told people that when Obama won. They're saying, oh, Obama's going to be such a good friend of online poker. This is all going to stop. I said, no, it's not. You're going to see. This office is going to do the same thing. Different people, same thing. You're going to see. So don't blame the Republicans for this one. 
Don't blame the Democrats either. It's just uh, across party lines here. Anyway, why am I telling you all this? Well, because Neteller is back, believe it or not. Now, how did they manage that? How are they coming back seven years later when they promised and paid $200 million to the government while making that promise that they will stay out of the U.S. market? Well, apparently they've gotten permission to offer services for WSOP.com. A lot of us got an email from WSOP.com saying the following. We are happy to announce that WSOP.com is now accepting net teller with deposits. The net teller e-wallet offers you a fast, simple, and secure alternative to traditional payment methods. You can fund your net teller account via a number of options, including Visa, Visa, Debit, MasterCard, Debit, and MasterCard. Now, when I looked, you could not withdraw using NetTeller. You could only deposit using it, which, of course, is different than the old days. Maybe that'll change one day, but that's the way I see it right now. Someone in that same thread said, this is only good if you can withdraw that way, and since you can't, uh, this is useless. I disagree. One problem with the existing online poker sites that wasn't really foreseen was that a lot of the banks don't want to process gambling transactions, whether they're legal or not. They just don't want a part of it. So like every credit card I was trying to use to deposit to WSOP.com and Ultimate Poker was failing until I got out my Citibank card, and that worked. I've been using my Citibank debit card, and that worked great on both sites, and there's no fees. But uh, laughably, even the Total Rewards Visa card cannot be used to deposit to WSOP.com. So, having another deposit option is always a good thing. And I hope that maybe one day NetTeller will once again be to U.S. players what it once was. Maybe you will be able to make these quick withdrawals. Maybe you will be able to then quickly transfer the money to other sites you're playing on. And it'll make things a lot easier. Because right now, getting money off these sites is a pain in the ass. It's a slow process. It's you know you're not you know your money's there. You know it's not disappearing like it did on full tilt. But you know it's going to take a while to get it. It's going to take a few weeks to get it, which is blazing fast compared to the legal U.S. rooms these days. But still, not like the old days. I'm hoping this is the beginning of the return to the old days. So, welcome back, Net Teller. I guess. This is interesting. Sandwich wrote, I can transfer money on and off, no problem, via ACH bank transfer, but I tried NetTeller and they fucked me with cash advance fees. Pretty bad. I guess they gotta still work out the kinks. I think it was your credit card that fucked you in a way, but also NetTeller for not warning you. Um, This is why I like using debit cards, by the way. This is a little bit of a separate topic, but... Always try to use debit cards when depositing to any poker site because you can never be charged for a cash advance. Cash advance fees are terrible. There's usually like a flat fee there. Sometimes it's a percentage. Then you got to pay all this interest that starts accruing immediately. It's unlike credit card purchases. You have like a 25-day grace period to pay. Uh, you don't have that with cash advances. He said he confirmed with NetTeller in advance, so I, I guess... Uh, they did screw up in some way. But yeah, uh, debit cards are always the best because 
whatever you charge is exactly what they'll charge you. There will be no fees. Okay, let me uh, quote a few text messages here. Are you going to play the little one for one drop at the World Series? Answer, no. Why? Because I don't play in charity events which make money for the entity running them. I don't mind making money for the charity, but not uh, not when Caesars is raking it the same way they would rake a $1,000 buy-in event, which is what they're doing. So they're making a lot of money off this thing, and they're giving nothing to charity, and I'm giving everything, and I don't even get the write-off. No thanks. Okay. Next message. Druff's, un- Druff's giant unshaven balls are God. That's from the 586 area code. From the 503... Yo, Druff, what are your thoughts on charging markup? Seems like a lot of internet kids charge crazy markup and seems way too high. What's a good way to figure out how much markup someone should be charging? Well, it depends on the reason why they're doing it. Um, I obviously charge markup. We're talking about marking up the pieces you sell for tournaments. So, for example, to buy 1% of me at a $1,500 event, it's not $15, it's $18. So I'm charging a 20% markup. Why is that? Well, there's a few reasons. Uh, first of all, because I'm the one who's putting all the time and effort into playing. Two, I have some expenses associated with, associated with playing. Uh, three, the events I'm choosing to play, I feel I have an edge over the average player in the field. I'm not saying I'm the very best player in the field, but I'm saying that in the events I've chosen to play, I feel I'm a lot better than the average player thus giving me an above-average chance to cash. So, what is the right markup? Well, it's a hard question to answer, and it's one I've struggled with myself when trying to establish it. I I don't want to gouge people, but at the same time, uh, I want it to be... I don't want to be playing for free, which is essentially what you're doing if you're selling direct pieces at cost. Uh, I think, you know, 20% is around what you should be charging. Uh, If it's a very tough event, and when I say a really tough event, I mean one that's unlikely to have anyone or or barely anyone that's going to be fish in the field. If pretty much most of the people in the field are going to be just like you, uh, then you shouldn't be marking too much up. But... um, if people are charging ridiculous markups like 40%, that's just crazy. They shouldn't be doing that. Often the people charging the crazy markup are doing so because they're broke. Either they're broke or they're just trying to take advantage of people. So there's plenty of people selling at more reasonable markup who are good players. I would stick to them. This is from the 954 area code. Why the hell did she take off her shoes? Referring to that girl that I kissed 25 years ago. And then, well, I'll answer that question first. He had two questions. She took off her shoes because she was wearing uncomfortable high heels. So she, that's, that was a sign to me like she was planning to be there for a while in front of Whitney Houston's suite. Uh, second, the girl was already cheating on you, on Phil with you at 17. The bitch deserved to be on foot patrol. <laughs> Yep, I guess she was cheating on Phil. I, I don't know if they had an agreement, or I, I don't know what the situation was. I, I didn't want to know. Uh, Beer and Poker saying in chat, 
the $1,500 lottery event of the World Series, people shouldn't charge much, if anything, for those. I disagree. The $1,000 event, I, I think that's true. But the 1500 you start with enough chips, the 4500 in which you really can have a big edge over that field, especially if you get a lot of casual players at your table. Now, yes, you do have to get off to a good start. If you if you run bad, even if you're a great player, you're not going to get very far, but that that's tournament poker for you. But I'm telling you, I've seen a lot of bad, like very straightforward, obvious play there where people are just so easy to read and their play is so easy to understand that uh, provided you do get decent cards, you can build up a good stack without even really getting hit with the deck. Someone asking in chat, can you explain how markups calculated? Well, you just calculate it the way you feel like it. Like I said, okay, I want to mark up 20%. So that means 1% instead of being $15 is now $18. Okay. Druff, have you ever gotten a blowjob from a Jew girlfriend? Yes. 815 area code. I've got a boner, bitch. Fuck, fuck, shit, piss, cocksucker, bitch. Thank you for that. Druff, do you have any advice how to not get sick in the freezing cold AC at the Rio? Yeah, uh, the Rio, uh, I forgot to give this advice last time when I was giving uh, World Series advice. Do the same thing like you do outside. Bring a coat and wear long pants. When you go to the World Series to play, wear pants, even if the day is like 110 degrees. I'm not even kidding. And bring a jacket and short sleeves. And then if you get hot, you can take the jacket off. But in most cases, a jacket and long pants will be good enough to keep you warm. If you're cold, then the next day bring a heavier jacket. Or you know, bring two jackets. But I, I've been okay with just a jacket. But it is very cold there, and it confuses and tricks people because you know Las Vegas is so blazing hot during the summer, and then you go and you know you show up there in short sleeves and shorts, and then you're freezing in the room. All righty, let's talk about the situation on uh, WSOP.com. It's a bad one regarding something that just happened there. Yeah, pull up my notes on this one. Let's see here. All right, so WSOP.com is uh, currently run by an individual named Bill Reaney. Bill Reaney, I had a fairly high opinion of him prior to him running WSOP.com. He's the poker manager of WSOP.com. I don't know how much he gets paid, but he's the manager. And I thought he was a good choice because I had read his blog. He seemed pretty on the ball, seemed like a bright guy. Been around in poker for a long time. Uh, I, I thought he was a decent choice. Not the very best possible choice, but a decent choice. And I said, good. They, they hired a guy who has been watching everything in the world of poker and is just really on the ball. I'm, I'm glad they did this. 
That was my reaction when I heard that he was the poker room manager. But sometimes people with all the right qualifications and the right background aren't actually right for the position. You seen that before at work? You know, someone shows up with a, an advanced degree in uh, whatever topic that, uh, whatever subject that your job is about, and they they're just incompetent. Or or maybe it's somebody who seems to have all the right qualifications to be a good manager, but just can't manage. That's definitely the case with Bill Reaney. He's someone who just isn't getting it done and who just has not been a good manager. Now, I already had my own personal annoyances with him related to WSOP.com. Not not terrible things. Like a, He's not an enemy of mine. I don't dislike him personally. Um, I don't even think I've met him before. But I didn't like the fact that when I was having some problems regarding some things I had going on on WSOP.com, and I brought them up on 2 Plus 2, that I was completely ignored. And then I would tweet at him, hey, go take a look at these. And this, this wasn't like, you know, it was, I shouldn't say major things, but it was stuff he definitely, as a manager, should have been interested in happening. Like, he should have definitely been interested in getting to the bottom of what was happening there. Because if it was happening to me, it was happening to other people. But he wasn't interested. So finally, I goaded him on Twitter enough to responding to me. And and then I asked him, look, why are you ignoring your own site's support forum on 2 Plus 2? Because if you go to 2 Plus 2, to the internet poker section, you'll see they have different sponsored forums for different poker sites. And those are seen as support forums, where people go and post there when they have questions or issues with that site. At the same time, they're allowed to use that forum to promote things going on in those rooms because they're paying for it. They also moderate their own rooms, so 2 plus 2 moderators don't really get involved and you know more can be censored there than on regular 2 plus 2. But anyway, he seemed very uninterested in what was going on on that forum. So I asked him, like, why aren't you answering the questions that are being directed to you and to just the staff here in general on this forum? So then he said to me that this isn't really a support forum, that the support forum on 2 plus 2 is not a support forum. (laughs) Does that make any sense? But I'm going to go there right now. Go to 2plus2.com, go to the forum section, then I'm going to click on Internet Poker, and there, it says, Internet Poker, Discussions of Internet Poker Venues, Subforums, Winning Poker Network, WSOB.com, UltimatePoker.com, PartyPoker.com. All right, so... And then it says sponsored support forum for WSOP.com. So he says it's not really a support forum, but it says sponsored support forum for WSOP.com. <laughs> already a bad sign. Already a bad sign. So he did say that they're about to staff someone there to answer questions, that they didn't expect that this would be used for support. They thought it would be like promotional. 
But now that they understand people want it for support, they'll bring someone there. Okay, fine. Kind of short-sighted, kind of, you know, how could they not see this coming? But all right. Well, nobody ever showed up. It's still the same situation over on WSOP.com's support forum on 2 Plus 2, that if you post any questions or concerns, you'll get answers sometimes from other players, but as far as an official answer from staff, you, you get very little. Every once in a while, Bill Reaney pops in to answer, but it's, it's very underwhelming. So that's already a bad sign. So what was Bill's solution? If I was the poker room manager, I would live on that forum. I'm not kidding. If I was the manager of WSOP.com, I would live on that 2 plus 2 sponsored support forum, and I would make sure that every single thing gets answered to where they understand over there that Todd Wattellis, the manager, cares about WSOP.com, cares about all the player concerns, and wants to get to the bottom of every issue. Bill seems to be doing the opposite. So his solution for the fact that people are asking questions over there and there's nobody to answer them was to hold office hours on the forum. <laughs> now, what are office hours, you're asking? What are office hours? I mean, you if you were in college, you know office hours. That's when you're a professor... You could go visit him between like 11 and 1 on Tuesday and Thursday if you have any questions about the lecture. But this is a busy professor who is uh, making time for the students to individually approach him and ask him things. That makes sense. That's the academic model. But how can a forum have office hours? How does a forum have any hours? The way a forum works is you post something and it's up there forever. The post doesn't expire. It doesn't go away. And when the person who needs to answer that post sees it, then they answer. And it doesn't matter if they answer at 2 in the afternoon or 2 in the morning or two days later. I mean, it's better if they answer quickly, but they can always answer. So why hold hours? Why hold specific office hours where you come ask him questions? Now, I guess if this was like every day, then it would be good because at least you'd know certain hours of the day he'd be there to answer you quickly. But no. The office hours are not every day, not every other day, but approximately once a week. <laughs> I mean, can you believe this? The poker manager of WSOP.com has not hired a single person to answer questions on the support forum on the largest poker forum in the world. And he shows up himself once a week during specific hours to answer questions, and if you miss them then, then tough luck, wait till next week. Unbelievable. But it gets worse. If you think this is ludicrous, wait till you hear what happens. So, on uh, April 10th, five days ago, if you go take a look at that office hours thread, you will see it's laughably short. It's only 19 posts total, including... Bill's posts. See, my he even said at the end, was a light one this week, referring to very few people had questions for him. You might think, wow, things must be running really smoothly on WSOP.com if his once-a-week office hours are getting barely any posts. 
Well, it's not exactly as it appears. It has 19 posts in that thread, in that April 10th thread, because Bill was furiously deleting any questions he didn't want to answer. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Specifically, someone showed up there and expressed a concern regarding what happens to money that's confiscated from cheaters. Now, everybody agrees that if someone cheats or colludes on WSB.com, they should have their account closed and their money confiscated. There's, there's no question about that. I don't think we're going to find many people to argue that that's the wrong thing to do. The question is, what happens to that money? Once you take it from the cheaters, where does it go? If the cheaters won this money from other players while cheating, then what do you do? Do you just keep it? Or do you give it out to the players who it was stolen from? Well, a poster calling himself PSA SJC on 2 Plus 2 brought up a serious issue. He claims he reported obvious sit-and-go colluders, but weeks after doing so, he got no notification as to the results of the investigation or any money once they were removed from the prize pool. So... PSA SJC made a new thread on 2 plus 2 and expressed dismay that he can't get an answer as to where that money's going. Why is WSOP.com apparently keeping it? And he wrote, in or- this is a PSA SJC wrote this, in order to protect the, quote, privacy of the accused, they do not provide the accuser a brief summary of the results of the investigation. They do not refund us anything and they keep the frozen funds of the banned players to themselves. We are not only being cheated by the colluders, we're also being cheated by the site itself. So he's saying here that apparently if you report a colluder and WSB.com closes their account, not only won't they tell you that that person's account has been closed or what they found from their investigation, but they won't give you any money that was confiscated. Yeah, even if the money's won from you. Even if the money came from you that the players won, uh, you don't get it back. So... What happened when this all began was on April 2nd, during the prior office hours, uh, PSA SJC asked a very general question about the situation and this policy. Nothing specific about his case, just asked, you know, what do they do about colluders? And he claims that Bill said that he wouldn't discuss it in public, that uh, he'll only discuss it in private, which is already a bad sign. Because if it's a general question, like, why not just give your policy on how you handle collusion? That's not giving away anyone's info. That's not violating anyone's privacy. That's just giving a general policy. Whenever a company doesn't want to give a general policy uh, and then claims, you know, we don't want to violate someone's privacy, that's always BS. Always BS. That's a bad sign. That shows they're actually doing something shady and don't want to tell you. Hmm. Can't put that on the air. I was going to put the call on the air, but it's actually something I... Uh, it's a private call. It'll have to wait. Anyway. So... So he was... Um, so so he claims Bill told him that he wouldn't discuss it in public. So then he emailed WSOP.com support and asked for Bill to then contact him in privately and discuss this matter. And Bill did not respond to him. So 
Then on April 10th, the next Office Hours thread, eight days later, he raised issues about this again and got more specific about it. So this is what PSA SJC posted. Hey, Bill, in your Office Hours April 2nd thread, you wouldn't answer many of the questions I had asked pertaining to colluders and your unjust policy of not providing a brief summary of the investigation results to those who are kind enough to discover and make you aware of potential cheaters. See, he's bringing up a good point. They're actually doing work for WSOP.com by you know, getting cheaters off the site, identifying them and alerting them to them. You evaded the questions and even resorted to deleting one of my posts. You stated, listen, I'm not going to go into details with you in a public forum. I soon emailed support the following. Hello, Bill Reaney had implied to me in our spirited dialogue on 2 Plus 2 that he wanted to discuss the matter in another way instead of an open forum. Would you please remind him to email me back to either continue the back and forth or to set up a meeting where he gets a chance so I'm not forced to use that forum as the only way to communicate with him on these players' rights issues. Thank you. I I found the same frustration, by the way, that uh, um, it it was so hard to communicate with him. Like, I I try on the forum, he doesn't answer me. I try on Twitter, he doesn't answer me. Like, if you have a problem going on WSUB.com, you don't know who to go to. Support is useless. So you try to go to the manager, he doesn't respond to you. So he goes on to write, I didn't hear back from you, instead, uh, from another member of your team. So when you said you didn't want to discuss this in an open forum, I guess you meant at all. Look, you've got an unfair policy towards people who report cheating and to players who have been cheated by colluders. Can't you see that? Why would it be so hard to change that policy? Telling a player who, who had suspected players of cheating that they were found guilty or innocent after an investigation doesn't infringe on the privacy of the accused. That's just ridiculous. It can only violate their privacy if you provide their real names or personal information or perhaps their whole cards. He's raising a good point. You know, if you say screen name such and such has been banned and, uh, um, you know, because we found he was violating our terms of service, uh, here's your money back. That's not violating privacy. However, not providing a summary of the results will only create divisiveness between the site and the accuser. The accuser will never know if the players were banned or if the investigation found them innocent. They won't even be certain if there was ever an investigation at all. They'll always wonder if they'll get refunded or compensated from any losses from the cheaters. Why would a competent business subject their honest players to to this? In the short term, the only winner from this policy is you. You take in a rake in entry fees from cheaters and non-cheaters alike. You can take your time in an investigation and not even do a quick preliminary investigation to assess if their account should be frozen because you're not the ones at risk of losing money. If you find them guilty, you could freeze their accounts, ban them, and keep all their money. Obviously, you don't distribute their funds among those who have been cheated since I haven't seen a dime and since nobody has answered that question in three weeks. If you did, we'd know why they were guilty of cheating and why they would, and, and that would be, quote, so horrible if we were to deduce that. It's a win-win for WSOP.com, but only for the short term. In the long term, many of your players will lose their trust in you. Many will stop investing their money or playing on a site that doesn't look out for their best interests. They will tell others, and those will tell other people. For those who stay, they will quickly jump ship once a reputable international site gets the okay to provide service in their state. Put an end to this policy, Bill, and start protecting our investments from cheaters by compensating those who have been affected. There's not a poker player who will agree with your policy, so why have it? I hope you regain my trust and do what is ethically right. So that post on April 10th was deleted. (laughs) 
That was during the office hours. Just deleted, like it never existed. And uh, Bill even has the nerve to say it was a light one this week. <laughs> when talking about how few posts there were up there. Instead of just like, keeping his mouth shut, he says it was a light one. It wasn't light. You were deleting all the posts that had any kind of controversy to them. So what this guy went and did, this PSA SJC, is he made a new thread, not an office hours thread, but a new thread, bringing this up and bringing up how this is being covered up. And Bill said, Bill responded finally. Bill said, first off, let's get some facts out of the way. The reason your message was moderated or deleted is because you kept bringing up the same issue over and over again. I've given you the best answer I can give you, and you started arguing with the answer. I told you I could no longer discuss this issue with you online without violating one or more parties' privacy, and you called that BS and demanded we hash this out in public. Now, let's stop there. First of all, why delete everything in that case? Why wipe out the whole thing? If if he wants to wipe out the guy asking the same thing over and over, fine. Wipe out the duplicate messages. But why wipe out the entire discussion? That looks like a cover-up to me, not someone who's being too persistent. Uh, second, I believe this guy that he was trying to engage the discussion in private after Bill told him not to have it in public. So I don't believe that either. So then Bill says, let's go through this. And he quotes uh, this snippet from PSA SJC. Here's why we were being cheated on WSOP.com. Three weeks ago, I discovered five colluders at the sit-and-go tables, which is no big deal since there will always be cheaters. I reported them to support with extensive evidence. They continued to play together for an additional four or five days after my initial email and despite my additional evidence and pleas for them to perform a preliminary investigation to freeze their accounts. Now, that's true. That's pretty bad that it took four or five days to shut off these colluders. They, they really should do a quick investigation if it seems highly suspicious and suspend someone. That, that's already pretty bad. So then Bill Reaney wrote in response to this, part of the reason it is difficult to have a conversation in all in bolded letters. Part of the reason it is difficult to have a conversation about this is you keep bringing up the same things even after they've been addressed. <laughs> How have they been addressed? We, we don't have any answers. The, the posts were deleted. How has it been addressed? I mean, it's, nobody knows. That's crazy. He went on to say, I've already told you that we take allegations of cheating very seriously. We took some time to do a thorough investigation. Your, quote, evidence has to be corroborated. What does that mean? Has to be corroborated. If there's super obvious colluders... It doesn't have to be corroborated. You just you see it. You see it looks very bad. You freeze the accounts. You do a more detailed investigation. If it turns out it, it was true, then you take him out of the prize pool as if they weren't there and redistribute the money. Easy. Uh, believe me, we get tons of cranks who claim this or that guy is cheating simply because they want them banned or they lost money to the guy. Now, I believe that, but uh, – First, you have to look who it's coming from. If it looks like it's from a, a person who's a winning player on there, who's a reasonable, high-volume player. And, and second, um, you can quickly look at the hands in question. And if they look like they're suspicious, then okay. Then you don't treat them as a crank. If it's just some guy going, man, I can't believe that guy. He's always calling me with ace high. He must see my cards. That's when you ignore it. Um, 
you wouldn't like it if we just yanked your account whenever someone claimed that you were cheating, would you? You would want us to do some research and validate there's no reason to believe you may be cheating, right? Now, I can apologize if it wasn't handled at the speed you would like, but other than that, I don't know why you feel the need to keep bringing it up. Well, uh, he wants to bring it up, one, because colluders who are obviously colluding, according to this guy, uh, continued playing five days after being reported, and second, because he still can't get a clear answer about the policy. So then uh, PSA SJC was quoted again by Bill Reaney. PSA says this, I didn't expect WSB.com to have the same exact policy as PokerStars, but I was shocked to discover it's quite the opposite. Uh, in order to protect the privacy of the accused, they do not provide the accuser a brief summary of the results of the investigation. They do not refund us anything, and they keep the frozen funds of banned players themselves. We're not only being cheated by the colluders, we're being cheated by the site itself. So then he says back, like, like you think the response to this would be an explanation of their policy, so we all understand for the future. But this is what Bill wrote. This is why I have refused to discuss this with you in public. You are told by our fraud team some of the financial details as they pertain to any money owed or not owed to you. I cannot say anything else about this without violating both your privacy and the privacy of those who were caught. So you know, one, the colluders were caught. Two, what your financial resolution is. What else can we provide? I'm more than willing to have a discussion with someone, but I'm not going to be harassed or allow you to hijack threads in the WSOP support forums. That's why you were banned. So I guess he's calling him banned because he was uh, just everything he posted in those office hours threads was deleted. Well, here's the problem. He's hiding behind the privacy BS, but you can't violate someone's privacy by giving a general policy statement regarding how you handle colluders. Bill Reaney, how do you handle colluders and cheaters on WSOP.com? How do you handle it? How? Someone cheats, someone colludes, you catch them, you freeze their account, you take their money. Okay, what's the policy at that point? Do you take them out of the prize pool? How do you figure out who gets what? What is your formula? What are your rules? You don't have to violate any individual's privacy. Just give us the rules. Make us feel good that if someone cheats or colludes, that the money will not stay in the pockets of WSOP.com, that it will go back to players who are affected by it. That's all we want to hear. But what he's saying is, well, I already told you your own situation, privacy. You're not happy with privately. You're not happy with it. But I can't debate this with you publicly because it's violating your privacy and the other guys. So I'm just going to say nothing at all and nothing at all about the policy. Nobody gets to know the policy because we can't discuss your specific case, which is ridiculous. You should always be able to find out the policy with everything. It's just like with laws, like. You can always find out in some way the laws of your state, of your country, of your city, of your county, whatever, even if you're HOA. A law can't exist if you have no way to find out what it is. But that's what's going on at WSOP.com. They will not tell people how it's handled. He was also very harsh to the guy here. I mean, this, this was like a a forum fight rather than a manager handing something professionally. When you're a manager, you can't insult people. You can't be snippy or snotty with them. You can't act frustrated with them. You have to act professionally, even if you think the guy's a jerk and you hate him. You have to always be professional. That's part of the job. So you don't bold words like, uh, this is the reason it's difficult to have a conversation about this with you. 
You don't write that if you're the manager of WSOP.com. You don't write that to, P- to players in your site. And then if that wasn't bad enough, uh, the 2 plus 2 users weren't happy with this uh, nasty and evasive answer from Bill Reaney. So a, a regular poster, their name's 3-9-suited, posted, is it correct that the original poster and the other players affected do not get any refund from the games with collusion as stated in this thread? If this is indeed the case, can you provide us a reason why? And all Bill said back was, the original poster has been informed why. <laughs> so he's saying this other guy knows why, but he's not telling the rest of us. We, we don't get to know. We don't get to know in this case. We don't get to know in any case. We don't get to know in general. We don't get to know anything. Terrible. This is simple. If you catch a cheater in a sit-and-go, just take him out as if he wasn't there and redistribute the money properly. If it's a cash game, it's a little bit tougher, but uh, you, you can try to figure out a fair way to reimburse players. But the bottom line is you have to reimburse the players with every penny that these people had taken from them, not... Uh, <laughs> I mean, you don't... Uh, Keep the policy secret. It's ridiculous. Makes you look shady. As someone pointed out on the 2 plus 2 thread, let's say a sit-and-go pays three spots, and the top three spots all end up being the cheaters. If the cheaters get their money confiscated, but it does not get redistributed to the other players of the sit-and-go, that sit-and-go ends up with a zero prize pool. That's awful. That should never happen. Now, someone else pointed out that this situation would give the Adelson-funded opponents of online poker a lot of ammunition to claim that colluders can cheat you online and uh, you don't get your money back. Even if they're caught, you don't get your money back. That would be a terrible black eye for online poker if they start running ads like that. So I don't know why WSOB.com is giving them this kind of ammunition against legalized online poker, because this this really does look shady. You hear about this, you almost want to vote against online poker. Now, even if this accuser is completely full of shit or isn't telling us the whole story, Bill Reaney's response is troubling in a few ways. It's unprofessional, it's angry, it's evasive, and it will not tell us the policy that we all want to know. And then he abandoned the thread. There were like four more pages after that. He abandoned it. Guess we'll have to wait until the next office hours to ask about this again. (laughs) Seriously. So expect more crap like this when uh, Bill Reaney's in charge. What a mess. So... Let's move on to another topic. I want to talk about the uh, PPA, Poker Players Alliance. I've been critical of them over the years. But um, this is a story about the PPA engaging our enemies. Our enemies being the people who were hired by Sheldon Adelson to lobby against online poker. Rich Muni, the vice president of the Poker Players Alliance, who does listen to this show now. He was on the show once, too, about a year ago. 
he was openly engaging in arguments with uh, Sherry Jacobs and, and one other guy who was uh, you know, in charge of this propaganda against online poker. Well, another listener to this radio show and poster on Poker Fraud Alert named Steve Ruddock wrote an article basically criticizing the PPA for uh, for doing this, and specifically Rich Muni. So let me get to this article here. Yeah, so this article that Steve Ruddock wrote is called It's Time for Poker Advocates to Stop Feeding the Trolls. And what Steve Ruddock wrote was Arguing with people whose personal agenda is so transparent as to almost be laughable simply devolves the entire debate. These cl- their claims have been debunked, yet they continue to make them. You've engaged them countless times and progress is never made. Nothing you say or do, no matter how truthful and factual or easy to understand, is going to make one iota of difference. What makes these debates all the more pointless is that the other side's insistence of simply repeating themselves, there's no back and forth. The debate simply devolves into accusations, semantics, and the tried-and-true method of ignoring any piece of evidence that debunks your claims and pointing out the thinnest thread of speculation that may confirm your claim. So my message to poker advocates, this is from Steve Ruddick, not me, please stop punching down, stop engaging the likes of Sherry Jacobs and James Thaxton directly. So how do I feel about this? Well, I actually agree with the PPA on this one. I know, big shock here. But the problem is, if you don't call out the BS that uh, these propaganda artists are spewing, then a lot of people end up reading it and become convinced. Now, when I say a lot of people, I don't mean you. I don't mean me. I don't mean anyone who listens to this show. I mean average people who don't know very much about the online poker legalization battle. And what I think Rich Muni is going for here is getting the average person who's following these people to follow the conversation and say, hey, wow, you know, these people kind of made sense before, but now I see they're idiots. So that's where I think it's valuable. I don't expect Rich Muni to get Sherry Jacobs to admit that, oh yeah, online poker isn't that bad, it probably should be legal. She'll never admit that. She'll just keep fighting and fighting and will never back down because that's her job to do that. But if people watching the Twitter debate see this, then they will be influenced because they will see that the points being raised by the other side are stupid. And that the points being raised by people like Rich Muni and other online poker legalization advocates are good. And all but the idiots will get the point that these hired guns are just that and they're just spewing nonsense. If you don't answer them, often the nonsense can look legitimate. And you've seen that in the media. Haven't you read stories in the news media, in blogs, wherever, where 
Everything seems to fit together well. Everything seems to make sense. And you almost believe it. Until then you read another article debunking the whole thing and you go, oh wow, I can't believe I ever fell for that. Because when someone is making statements unchecked and you don't know that much about the subject, it's very easy to be tricked. Even if you're a smart person. So it's good, in my opinion, that the PPA is doing this and that Rich Muni is debating with these people. In fact, I think these people are making the mistake by engaging Rich Muni and making themselves look stupid. If they were smart, they would just ignore any kind of tweets in their direction that's critical and just keep tweeting out the same BS propaganda. Then as far as anyone following them sees, uh, it's just all the same thing. And there's no debate to be had. But they're pretty much giving airtime to the PPA here during their effort, and I think that hurts their cause. So, I, And yet the other side I don't believe is true. I don't believe on the other side that anyone's going to read Rich Muni's tweets and go, wow, that's, that Sherry Jacobs has a point. You know, online poker is bad. Because anyone who's following Rich Muni of the PPA is probably pro-online poker. Before I get to my other editorial, let me read about... Uh, Read some text here. Hey, Druff, please don't say my full name. XXXXXX here. Where should I stay at the Rio for cash games during World Series? Or should I play? Should I pay half price and stay at Bally's or Harris and cab it over every day? Well, they do have a shuttle there. But uh, the Rio is pretty cheap. Actually, I'm surprised it's uh, double bally's. But uh, if you stay at the Rio, stay at the Ipanema Tower. Trust me on that one. There's two advantages to the Ipanema Tower. First of all, it's closer to the World Series area. And second, it's quieter. It's a little bit older, but truthfully, it's not that much difference between that and the Masquerade Tower. And the Ipanema has a much better location, and it's much quieter. I would just suggest stay at the Rio where the action is. It's just so much more convenient to walk to everything rather than hassling with cabs or shuttles or driving or, you know. Much better to stay there, in my opinion. Um, Here's a question from 954 area code via text. Do you think Ivy was quiet about the Crockford's lawsuit because one, he didn't want to expose the flaw in the cards and two, because he exposes himself to being sued by other casinos? He said in a press release that he tried everything he could to resolve the issue, but Crockford's left him no other option. He has to know once he goes public, Crockford's going to come out and expose the flaw. Yeah. That is true, that um, by suing Crockford's, that his ability to do this was going to be pretty much over, but I, I guess he felt the word would probably get around anyway, or maybe they'd fix the cards. And still, there was $12 million at stake. So there was so much money at stake, I think he had to. So if you want to text anything before the end of the show, we're coming near it. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. Editorial number two. That's really our last thing on the agenda tonight. What can be done about so few women playing live poker? It's the truth. There's very few women in live poker. It's a male-dominated activity. Always has been, despite the mainstream 
status that poker has enjoyed over the last 10 years, it still does not have very many female playing li- females playing live. Now, there's an article written on cardplayer.com, and uh, let me pull this up here. Let me pull this up. This article just bothered me. It just bo- it reminds me of the type of crap I read when I was in college in the newspaper there. Okay. So this article was uh, written by a guy named Robbie Straczynski. I don't know him, but uh, the basic premise of the article is that there's a ton of sexism in poker. And until we get the sexism out of poker, that women are going to stay away from the poker table, that we have to start treating women with more respect at the poker table, that uh, we shouldn't look down on them. We have to understand that women can actually be good poker players, can't speak in a degrading fashion to them, uh, can't get angry when a woman bluffs us. So, basically this long article, which also profiles a lot of famous female poker players and interviews them, this very feminist-looking article written by a guy basically says that we have to all get together and treat women better at the poker table, and that'll bring the women back to poker. Otherwise, uh, we're not going to have women in poker. And probably the dumbest part of the article, it shows bathroom. This is a, a heading of part of the article. Bathrooms, a shitty situation. Now, I thought when they wrote about this that it was going to be something about the fact that because there's so few women playing poker, especially uh, in tournaments, that they will often uh, have gigantic lines for the men's room, and the women's room has like, you can just breeze right in there. But no, it's the opposite. This article is actually trying to claim that women are at a disadvantage with the bathrooms at poker tournaments. <laughs> now, how can that be? How can you be in a disadvantage using the bathroom when like 97% of the people are using the other bathroom? Well, this person is claiming that uh, they close some of the women's bathrooms and turn them into men's bathrooms and the women have to walk farther to get to the bathrooms they, they need to use. But hey, I don't care. If you need to walk a little further, it's a lot better than standing on a line of like 100 people to piss during a 20 or 15 minute break. I can tell you that every time we have a break at the World Series of Poker during a big event, it's one of the few moments in my life where I wish I was a girl. It doesn't happen often, but I actually wish I was a girl during that moment because you can just breeze right into the ladies' room and the men's room, every single one you go to, unless you want to really, really walk far, uh, has a big line. So this guy's so out of touch, he's actually saying that being female is a disadvantage for using the bathroom at the World Series, which is crazy. I can tell you that from 10 years' experience. That's just absolutely incorrect. But um, the real thing that bothers me about this article is it's unrealistic. It reminds me of when I was in college and there were all these anti-rape protests and all these uh, 
feminists going on and on about how men have to stop raping women. And I go, well, yeah, I agree. I agree that rape is a very bad thing. Whether it's date rape or real rape, I, I agree it's bad. I would love to see it stop. I'd love to see rape stop. I'd love to see murder stop. I'd love to see robbery stop. I'd love to see terrorism stop. I'd love to see a lot of heinous crime stop. I'd love to see child molestation stop. But you cannot just go to a group of people, hey, this is bad, stop this, and the perpetrators will then stop doing it. You will always have a certain percentage of people that will not act right. You will never talk child molesters out of molesting. You will never talk rapists out of raping. You won't talk murderers out of murdering. You're always going to have a certain segment of the population that will be deviant like that, that will commit these crimes. You can do a few things to lessen them, but you can't stop it completely. So you will always have jerks at the poker table. Hey, I run into jerks at the poker table all the time, and I'm a guy. I have people treating me disrespectfully in live poker sometimes, and I'm a guy. Maybe for different reasons than females get treated, but the thing is, you're always going to have jerks at the poker table, especially when they're drinking. So it's stupid to write a whole article about how we have to start treating women with more respect and and, uh, believing they can be good and and treating them like they can be good and not being mad when they bluff and, and all this other crap. Like, I don't see what the point of that article is because I know when I'm at a poker table, I, I don't talk down to women. I don't treat women disrespectfully. I don't make crude comments to them. I treat the women at the table just like I treat the men at the table. I treat everyone the same. And I know not everybody's like me, but most guys I see at the poker table generally treat women respectfully. In fact, some actually treat them too respectfully where they kiss their ass and soft play them just because they're female and they like them. And I never get that favor done for me, obviously. So there's actually some advantages to being female at the poker table. But putting that aside, I don't know what this guy thinks he's going to accomplish with the article. It's like... uh, Yeah, you can write an article about how bad sexism is, how bad disrespect for women at the poker table is, but it's not going to change anything because the ones treating the women disrespectfully, one, probably aren't going to read your article, two, if they do, probably don't think that they're the ones doing it, and three, even if they do, they're not going to change. So what do we do to bring more women to poker? Well, I have bad news for you. We probably can't. We can change it a little bit, but we probably can't. The women's events, yeah, those can be good to get some interest in the game. And you can try to market to women a little bit more. But the truth is, there are certain activities that appeal much more to one gender than the other. For example, you don't see a lot of males involved with needlepoint. You can try to market needlepoint to males. Even if you remove the entire stigma against a male who would be into needlepoint, you just would not find many males into needlepoint. It just would not happen. Why? Because maybe partially from societal factors and maybe partially from just inherent differences between the sexes, natural differences we have, men are just not as interested in needlepoint as women are. And I think there's been too much of a trend in the last 20 years to try to insist that men and women are completely equal with everything. 
And you can be not equal with everything and still be just as good as one another. You can just each have different interests. You can have different areas where uh, things appeal to you. You can have different strengths and weaknesses. And that's okay. That's what makes us different. For whatever reason, women just don't have that much interest in poker as a whole. They've had plenty of exposure to it in the last 10 years. They're just not that interested. Now, there are exceptions. We have some very good and successful female poker players out there. I know some personally. They play just as well as the guys do. But they're the exception, not the rule. Even women who could learn to be great poker players just don't have an interest in doing it. There are a number of women I've known who I think could be great poker players if they wanted to do it, but they just don't want to. They have no interest. And I can understand that. I have no interest in certain things. You have no interest in certain things. Some things just don't appeal to you as a recreational activity or even as a career. I think we have to stop being hung up on the number of women in poker and just accept the fact that it's a game that was created by men that appeals much more to men and always will appeal much more to men. And that's why we have girlfriends. We can spend time with our girlfriends and our wives doing other things that don't have to do with poker. We don't have to get women in poker. I think it's nice to remind people to treat women respectfully at the poker table, and I've always done that myself. But the sad thing is the ones that might be driving some women out of the game are never going to heed that advice or even read that advice. Now, if you don't believe me, how many women you think played poker and left because they were treated poorly versus women that just have never played a hand of it? I'm talking about live card rooms, not like little home games. I think just most women have never even played one hand of poker in a live card room. Benjamin's mom has never played one hand of poker in a live card room and has no desire to do so. And I think most women are like that. There are some that are not. There are some that do want to play poker, that do find poker appealing, but I just don't think poker appeals to women the same way, just because women are different. Not inferior, just different. Someone's talking about uh, Sean Deeb, the uh, great female player. Remember that when he uh, dressed up for the women's event? And, you know, I I don't support that, the dressing up for the women's event. You know, don't bother the women when they want to have their event. Let let them do it. Don't, Don't create a distraction, a disruption. Don't force your way into the event. I know they have a penalty on there now, like for it's $1,000 for women, 10000 for men to enter. But, uh, you know, I, I don't support doing things like that. Well, that's it. Uh, I'll take a few quick questions in the chat room. 
and then we'll be done. Someone saying in the chat, I remember literally staring at Roy Winston's ex-girlfriend at Commerce. She was beyond ridiculously hot. What happened to Roy Winston? That guy just vanished. Roy Winston was weird when I played with him the one time I ever did, which is at Borgata. Um, He was telling me what he was going to do and then did it. So he'd say something like, all right, well, if you bet on the turn, I'm going to fold. And then I bet on the turn, and he folds. And and he wasn't, like, messing with me, but he's like, he did this to everyone. He was, like, literally, like, calling out what he's going to do next. It was the weirdest thing. He's just one of those people from poker. He just vanishes, and then you just don't think about it until someone brings up his name. All right, so uh, anybody who wants to ask questions of me, you can call me. You can text me. You can do it in the chat room. Otherwise, this shuts down. We're done. Finito. Every week, we seem to land right around three hours. I I was looking at the list of shows, and they're all like three hours, four minutes, three hours, ten minutes, three hours, uh, 18 minutes, three hours, three minutes. It's amazing. They were all so close. And I don't even try to do this. Just somehow, it all just lands right around three hours. No matter when I start. Late, early, on time, whatever. Okay, never early. (laughs) But... uh, Anyway, if we don't get any questions soon, I will just shut it down. Maybe I've answered everything. No one's asking me anything from what I can see. Um, Why, did Flipper Fair make the... Did he win the tournament? No, he didn't. Okay. Well, nobody has any questions for me this time. Asking where did I go to college? I, I went to UCSB. Have you read the Jonathan Little books? No, I have not. Someone else, Gecko is asking me that. Any other questions in the chat for the short Ask Dan Druff segment? No, I'm not going to talk about lock poker. There's nothing really to say. But I'm sure there'll be something to say soon. They provide endless material for the show. Just not this week. All righty. No problem. You know, uh, I almost had a co-host today. A co-host who, well, he's got a little bit of an age gap between me and him, and I thought it just wouldn't make the best chemistry. This co-host was born in 2010. (laughs) Benjamin said he wanted to do the radio show with me today. And when I told him I'm going to do it myself, he was very upset about it. He told me he wanted to do it with me. And then he said, I want to do a radio show with you and talk about poker. But he doesn't even know what poker is. He just... I don't even know how he heard that, but... He knows I do this radio show about poker, even though he doesn't understand what poker even is. But I don't think that would have made the best radio for three hours, having a three-year-old on here. Anyway, people, uh, if you want to buy the few remaining pieces of me, there's some left, but not many. Check out the World Series of Poker Forum on PokerFraudAlert.com. 
World Series starting in one and a half months. Wow. It's right here. Now, hold on, hold on. Caller, you're on the air. Hello, I was wondering when you were going to begin to call Benjamin Bugsy. Uh, I don't think it's going to happen, but it's a good question. You yeah, else? you know, like Bugsy Seagal. No, I, Seagal, I know what you're referring to. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't think I want to refer to him as a gangster, but, you know, Bugsy, I, I guess he was kind of successful. I, I guess I wouldn't mind if Benjamin owned a casino one day. So, uh, anything else? That's it. All right, thank you for the call. Yeah. Quality phone call. All right, well, at least it didn't take up a lot of time. <laughs> that was from the that was from the 702 area code. Anyway, people, we are done this week, but we'll be back once again. Oh, hold on. Hold what 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 what. I forgot a very important announcement. I regret to inform you that next week there will be no show. Totally forgot to mention that. There will not be a show next week. Actually, it has to do with Benjamin. There will be nobody to watch him during the show. His mother is uh, going to be gone. So she'll be gone for enough days during the week that I will not be able to reschedule the show. So there will be no show on April 22nd unless her plans change, which is a small chance of that, but uh, probably there will be no show on April 22nd. We will be back on April 29th at our usual 6.30 or thereabouts time. So uh, I hope you don't get to miss the show too much, and I apologize about that, but uh, at least we've gotten on a pretty regular schedule again after missing some earlier this year. But hey, it'll give me more of a chance to watch those uh, Tuesday night Dodger games. And... uh, I bet we'll have a lot to talk about in two weeks. Because uh, then we have a buildup of material that I didn't get to discuss. But we actually had a good deal to discuss this week, given that it's only been one week since we last had this program. I'd like to give a big thank you to everyone donating to the free roll. We still have $127 that we haven't given away yet that will be given away in the coming weeks. Thank you to everybody who's been so generous and... uh, I appreciate all of you who bought pieces of me. I'm going to hope to do really well. I'm going to try really hard to get it done for you guys this year. See you in two weeks. Good night and shalom.